Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. The best teams start with great talent. We're going to be talking about one of the my favorite teams that never won a title at the end of this, Charles Barkley's 93 Sons. It's going to be a, a we're bored rewatchables coming up way later. Uh, no one knows the importance of talent more than our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. They deliver qualified candidates fast, powerful technology, scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. So effective. Four to five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Meanwhile, introducing the new Microsoft Surface Laptop 3 with its beautiful touchscreen, you'll experience stunning graphics with razor sharp resolution. Now available with a 13 and a half or 15 inch screen. And with the latest processors, there's no project the Surface Laptop can't handle. It's both light and powerful. You can get more done on the go. Visit surface.com slash laptop three to learn more. That is surface.com slash laptop three. We're also brought to you by the ringer.com and the ringer podcast network where we are still cranking out all kinds of content. Larry Wilmore, David Chang, JJ Redick. Uh, they all did podcasts last week. We put up two rewatchables, including Castaway, which I did by myself. The first ever self rewatchable. We have two rewatchables coming up this week as well. Edge of Tomorrow is coming Monday night. I'm not on that one. And then Ryan Russell and I are doing Karate Kid later in the week on the rewatchables feed. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because I was trying to get people to donate to the Greater Boston Food Bank during the times we're in right now. Uh, food is, the supplies are, uh, are limited these days and potentially getting worse. So we raised between that and I I told people I would match up to 50,000. We did over 100,000 that we raised for uh, the Greater Boston Food Bank. One of the conditions was if we got to 100,000 that we would do a Karate Kid rewatchable. So you can still, if you want to donate, um, even belatedly, I'm sure they would be happy to have you. So go check that out. Check out my Twitter feed. I did a bunch of posts about that as well. Coming up, Brasil and I are going to do a whole bunch of fun things uh, and try to take your mind off all the crappy stuff that's happening right now. I hope everyone's staying safe out there and I hope everybody is practicing the social distancing thing and listening to the experts. Um, that is all you can do. And we're going to keep cranking out content here. I know everybody is bored as hell. I hope you're safe. I hope your family is safe. Um, hope you're making the right decisions. All right. Here is our friends from Pearl Jam. Taping this Sunday afternoon. We don't need to tape this on Sunday night anymore because there's no sports. It's all, it's all vintage sports. I've actually been preparing for this moment my whole life. Old games. Ryan Rosillo is here as he is every Sunday night. This was the part of the schedule when we would be talking about uh, March Madness thoughts, where the last couple of weeks of the NBA would, would, were going. We would be worried about uh, MVP conversations and things like that. Now, now I want to talk about um, the Leitner shot because I watched that with my son yesterday. He had never seen it. He didn't know it was going to happen. He was amazed. I got to relive it through him, Rosilla. Yeah, that was uh, that was an all time. I mean, that that's seriously in the moment you're like, this is the kind of game that I'm going to think about for the rest of my life. I mean, not every day, um, 
certainly, but Leitner's just dominance as a college player. And then seeing younger people watch that game now and not like Leitner's mom, and you go, you guys have no idea. You have you have no you think you know, but you don't. You know what I what struck me watching that game? I thought Leitner was gonna be a really incredible pro because he was so good in college. But then you watch him and you think about like you're translating him, it's like, oh, he's got slow feet. It was really hard for him to like put the ball down. Every shot was almost like a miracle shot by him, like off balance, fling shots, uh, these turnaround 15 footers. I think nowadays he would have been an awesome stretch five. I think he just would have been shooting eight threes a game and everything he did would have been different. But I, I'm, I was mad at myself 28 years ago that I thought Leitner was going to be such a good pro. Now, who else knew? Who knows what else happened to him? He went to the wrong team. He had some personal issues, et cetera. You know what the great lesson about Leitner is, is that he was, you'll know better than I, and I don't want to like get anything where I, I get this kind of thing wrong, but was he one of the first guys that like tested positive for weed? Like in that era, right? I, or it was rumored or something. There was always there was me, always rumors. Me. He talked about in the thirty for thirty we did that, you know, he he definitely uh off the court might have had a couple issues. But hey, everything I love watching these old games and just getting upset about some of the decisions they're making. Cause like Grant Hill just first of all, he was a sophomore coming off the bench, which seemed inconceivable. But uh it seemed like he could have gone by Anybody he wanted to on that Kentucky team at all times. And yet they're like, all right, spread out for Hurley. This is a much better option. Hurley's got this. It's like, maybe you should go to Grand Hill, the guys who the guy who's going to be a first-team All-NBA guy in five years. Yeah, uh, Leitner was suspended some games there. I don't, I don't know the mm. full history, but I just wanted to double-check it because I remember later on, and that was you know, when I started talking to guys in front offices and I would be leading up to the draft and I was like, you know, how can you figure some of this stuff out? Because what you learn is that no one really figures it out. But when you're outside of the world, you think everybody has this magic eye that, that none of us can understand. And it's really not that. And something a GM told me that was really, really smart. And again, it was the very beginning of me talking to these guys when we were talking about backgrounds and personalities and trying to figure things out. And he goes, look, he goes, there's plenty of guys that are from terrible areas, have a terrible family set up, and have bad guys around them left and right, and they're the best teammates, they practice hard, they care, you know, they never get in any trouble, and then you look at somebody like Leitner, who's like the poster boy, he's one of the best college basketball players in history, not just guys that we saw, he was that dominant, he was incredible, and it's like, here he is, Duke, looks like he's a gap model, and the whole deal, and it was like, well, yeah, you know, now no one cares about any of this stuff, but I just always thought that was really, really interesting and kind of talking about Leitner's transition to the pros because he was, it's hard to imagine he wasn't better because he still was a decent player. Like, he still had a decent career, but he was yeah. so incredibly dominating at Duke. Um, you you thought, there's, there's no way this isn't going to be a special pro. Plus, we had familiarity with him because we were able to, you know, watch him and watch that Duke team evolve. And even like they were showing Cherokee parks on the bench. And I was thinking like, Oh, I remember when they recruited him, he was like the number one guy in high yeah, school. He was a big deal. Yeah, He was going to be, it was going to go from ferry to Leitner to Cherokee parks. And you know, you're watching him on the bench and guys like Thomas, Thomas Hill, who I hadn't thought of in forever. And, you know, we just watched all those games back then. And, and I know something changed with college probably 15, 16 years ago when, you know, maybe there were, maybe it was less time. I know everybody's talked about all the possible reasons for it, but it just meant more back then. Like I, I remember where I watched that game and who I was with. 
you know, and I, and there's been great college basketball games, especially this year. Like they were showing today, they were showing Carolina Villanova, 2016. That was an awesome game. That was really fun. But it, there was a weightiness to, especially that 92 season. Cause that was also the year you had the, uh, the fab five. And, uh, it's just every, I remember everything about that season. It was fun to relive it. I thought CBS did a good job the way they showed it. It's, it felt like a real game. They didn't try to cut ahead. They would go to commercial and they would only show one ad so they could go right back. So it stayed in the flow, but they didn't try to edit it. They didn't cut free throws. So it, it kind of felt like being in a time machine, right? Yeah. That when I've gone back and, and watched some of the NBA stuff, um, you sit there and like the thing that jumps out, especially working on the side of it now, like I would, there are all these things that I would never think about as just a kid at home watching these games. And now that you work in it, not that you and I have a extensive background in calling games, but you just, you look at it so differently. Um, you know, when you mentioned the college basketball thing though, it is, it's a simple answer. You, you can't have a brand where you're changing the brand every single time. Like, imagine if you had this hit TV show with all these characters that people invested in, and then he said, oh, by the way, we're never bringing any of these characters back for season two. We're just going to bring in all new characters. And, and it just, it's hard. It's a really simple answer. But the turnover, like, we used to get weird when guys would leave after their sophomore years. We're like, what? Like, what's that guy think he's doing? Now, granted, it's wrong. I think guys should be able to go straight out of high school. But there's just, you know, we like things to be easy as fans and really as consumers in any kind of story, like really it's how do you get people to, to jump into the, the next part of the story and with college hoops, like how many people can name who's on Baylor, you know, right. before the season started? Like I stopped everything to watch Baylor, Kansas, and it was a really fun game this year. It was like a 9 a.m. tip out here. But I know that those kind of Duke games or that St. John's Georgetown stuff or Syracuse or that big Monday like I would watch that instead of the NBA growing up. And now it's absurd to think I would ever do that. Also, I noticed watching that, thinking about that Duke team and even Kentucky. And they were talking about how they were on probation for two years and the guys stuck around. And Patino was saying they didn't really have anywhere else to go. The so they had all these, yeah, they had all these seniors that were there. But one of the things I loved about college back then was it mirrored high school in the sense like the new guy shows up and he's the freshman he's got to prove himself. But then you got the older kids that have been there for a while. And you know, that Duke was like the perfect example of there were they were really like a high school team. Cherokee parks was the young freshman. Grant Hill was the sophomore who was going to take it over when Leitner leaves. And, and that dynamic that just eventually was gone. You watch that game and you're thinking Mashburn and, and Grant Hill are, are sophomores and Mashburn just looks unbelievable in that. He had a 28, 10, just looks like a classic stretch for now. He he would have been, uh, I think, a multiple All NBA guy. There's no reason he should have even stayed at Kentucky for two years. He should have gotten into the NBA as fast as he possibly could. We didn't realize that back then. Yeah, I got to know Mashburn when he was at ESPN. One of my favorite living in Bristol stories is he and I going to Walmart to buy an extra controller. And I didn't mm. know who was going to pay for it because I didn't want to assume anything. And I was like, yeah, because I had the PlayStation hooked up in my hotel room and we were just bored out of our minds. So it's me and Jamal Mashburn at Walmart. And I asked him about that team. And, you know, I always when I'd ask about different coaches that these guys played for, I was always really interested in which coaches told you to stay or told you to go because they are guys that are really selfish about it. But then there's other ways, you know, now it's it's out of control, like no one's staying. But back then I was like, well, what did what did Rick say to you? And he goes, I'm not letting you come back. You're too good. Like you're too good. You have to get out of here. And I know, you know, Rick Pitino's 
rep is, is taking some pretty big hits over the last couple of years. But that was something that I was always really impressed with that he just looked at like, I was like, did you want to see? He's like, I kind of wanted to stay because Mash's whole thing was like, he's a New York City guy and his mother wouldn't let him go to a school in New York City. He was telling me about some of the recruiting stuff. Like St. John's back then still would have thought they were getting a Jamal Mashburn. And he's like, my mother was like, you're not, you're not playing ball in the city. And then he goes down in Kentucky after Kentucky went through that, that brutal stretch. And, you know, that's, that's the game. You know, if you're thinking of one loss that you've had in your fandom, Bill, I'm trying to think maybe it's 2010 Celtics Lakers, the one that stings the most. I don't know if it's game six, 86 in the Mets, but that doesn't feel as bad since they've won four titles. But if you're a Kentucky fan, like that's the kind of that stuff comes up every day. It's like Bucky Dent in the '80s for Red Sox fans, just sitting at a bar, MF and Bucky Dent, um, because of Leitner's shot. Well, the Kentucky did end up winning. I think it's probably worse for Mashburn. If you're a Kentucky fan, you had two title teams later in the decade because, like Ben and I were watching, we went right from yesterday. We were watching that Kentucky game, and then the Major League Baseball Network were showing the playoff game in '78, Yankees Red Sox, and we watched the last like probably two and a half innings. And I was explaining to him how the playoffs worked back then. It was like, yeah, you played the whole season. <laughs> it was two division champs in each league. They tied. So we had to have a playoff game. And he was like, whoa, how'd they decide who had it? I was like, I don't remember. I just remember like everybody from Boston got to stay home that day. Yeah. And we were watching. He had no idea it was going to happen. And living through like the, the Remy hits that shot to Pinella and Pinella can't see. And he just jabs his jabs his mid out. I'm getting mad at George Scott all over again. I think he was my first least favorite Red Sox player. Just <laughs> swinging for the fences every time. Never, never touched the ball. But he was, was early on a, that. He was early. He was ahead of the oh years ahead of it. Just yeah. launch angle. Um, that was such an agonizing loss and they've won four world series since, and it still really hurts. I got to say it. I don't feel any better from it. Yeah. I, I grew up hearing about it because you know, that's where our, our gap comes into play where yeah. I was just still too young to but it was one of the first things like 82 was my first Sox game against the Brewers. And I, I just remember like the Bucky Dent thing, like it was four years later and people still, and I, I remember that we, again, like in seeing so like the way your brain stores stuff early when there's nothing else in there. So that's yeah. why as kids, we can always go back and remember so many things because there's no distractions of real life. But I remember being upset after the fact years later, just my father telling me that they blew the 14 game lead. And you just go, well, how is that possible? Like, how how could they have, lo like, how? You just go, right. no, they had the best team and all these different things. And again, that stuff used to matter a lot more. Um, and then, you know, 86, it all comes up again eight years later. So we've seen over the last few days, and especially ESPN and then uh, NBA TV and MLB, all these all these channels, they're, they're going all in on nostalgia programming. And... Even CBS, I was really surprised that they were just showing old games that you could see anytime on ESPN Classic and treating it like they were just these new games. It was cool. It makes me wonder. I would love to, I can't wait to find out what the ratings were for all this stuff. Like we're taping this on a Sunday afternoon under afternoon Pacific time. ESPN is showing WrestleMania 30 tonight, Sunday night. I don't have anything else to show. What happens if the ratings are really good for this stuff? Do you think this could lead to a remodeling a little bit of how they program stuff? Do you think we'll see more marathons? Do you think we'll see them gravitating toward old content over just like generic new content that nobody gives a shit about? Like something like the XFL, which I think was appealing to a couple different networks because it's like, oh, fresh sports. 
during a time when when this is all kind of dead. Like maybe you don't need as much fresh sports as we thought. Maybe the rehash stuff might work. I, I absolutely know. think they'll do it. No, you're right. I mean, it depends on what the numbers are, depend on what the inventory is. But like we both have seen, at least on the ESPN side, I think they they're going away from a bunch of decisions that Skipper made at the end of his run. And, you know, I think Skipper's decisions are like two pronged live rights. He buy up whatever he possibly could. And the NBA deal, I think, in the long run is going to turn out to be a really big deal that he got ripped for a lot. And then I think the in-studio stuff that he was paying a lot of money for, um, I don't think leadership there wants to keep doing those things. So if they start like planning out, like, what would our schedule lineup look like years from now? I always thought, like, remember when Dan Patrick used to do those sit downs with like a Bill Walton and they'd go over like the 86 finals Oh, I love those. Yeah, I love those. And I used to pitch this idea that, you know, let's let's revamp that where I'd have a Trent Dilfer, you know, somebody, you know, I didn't always have to be friendly with the person, but it helps. But I wanted to do something where I would host a show with a Trent Dilfer and just called your greatest game. And Dilfer sits down with me and we just film he and I watching that Super Bowl win against the Giants. Not that he was amazing in the game, but the whole point is like, okay, here's the anthem. You're balling. Like, what's going through your head? And then just edit into a 30-minute thing. I really think that this window here, and again, I don't know if anybody cares enough. When The difference, too, is like, what are the numbers now when there are no options versus the numbers when there's actually live event options? But I do think there is some nostalgic thing there because the other great part about this is guys that talk about this for a living, like, we can sit there for the amount of times that we debate eras and who would do what. I'll guarantee you 90% of the people screaming about that stuff haven't gone back and watched a game <laughs> in a really long time. Yeah. Like even watching the Barkley game that we're going to talk about later, I have four pages of stuff where it's just like, oh, that's right. Or, oh, that's what they did there. Or remember this. Or, wow, that doesn't happen anymore. So, you know, not that this is about being educational, but it really helps. It helps you kind of put some th- things into perspective and, and reminds you of like, wow, that guy was really special versus, oh, that's right. Like that was kind of easy and probably putting to bed the idea that so many of today's stars couldn't get it done in the 90s, which is just laughable and will be even more laughable once we start talking about 93. Yeah. And we're going to do that much later in the pod. I mean, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do the book of basketball pod because I felt like the same thing I felt like when I did my book in the late 2000s, like people just forget shit. You know, and the years pass and things slip through the cracks. And, you know, like one of the games we did on the Book of Basketball pod was 2003 Lakers Spurs game five with the Lakers going for a four Pete Duncan's best year ever. And then Robert Horry, who everybody thinks made every big shot ever took. He actually in and outs the game winning shot of that game and the Spurs end up winning the title. For whatever reason, that game didn't have a shelf life. And there's been a lot of those like that. I think the NBA games are really rewatchable, as we're going to talk about later with Barkley. But I was watching a lot of the Brady stuff today because ESPN was doing uh, the Brady Marathon. They were basically running all the Super Bowls, but they weren't running the games. They were running the really cool NFL films shows they do where they interview a lot of the people. And uh, and Ben and I watched the Rams game when uh, when they held on at the end and and, and Mike Martz, I don't know when they did the interview, but, you know, he, he was pissed about nine different things. That was really fun. Then we watched uh, the Baltimore game in 2015 and the Seattle Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, it's fun to relive this stuff. Now, the question is, if we actually had stuff to gamble on and keep fantasy sports and all that stuff, suddenly the old games don't matter. And I think that, I think it's more of a void. There's just nothing. Ben and I went on, 
on uh, my Instagram last night and we were playing Madden KO on Instagram live and people were in the comments like, this is great sports. You know, people are like thirsty right now for anything. It's sad. I mean, it's yeah, one no, of the many sad things about right now. No, that's definitely the point. Like whatever the numbers are, but I do think TV people will look at numbers and go, wait a minute, do we have something here? And then there's usually an overreaction where like you're almost better off. It's almost like a draft pick that gets hurt halfway through his draft eligible year and you go, good. Like, why would I come back to school? Like, if I'm supposed to be this, then like the small sample can be where the mistake is made. But as a programmer, if you see anything that's positive from it, my experience has been the decision makers will go, all right, well, let's start doing this. But yeah, you're right. If you're going up against NBA games again, it's like, hey, guess what? I don't want to watch Kenny Anderson at Georgia Tech. Like, even though you should want to watch Kenny Anderson at Georgia Tech, um, it's just it's it's this thing where it's so weird. Like the first couple of days, it didn't really bother me. I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into all this stuff. Probably a little update on our daily lives, but yeah, it is. We, I've had a few times where I'm like, okay, let me check the schedule. And I'm like, well, I guess I don't have to check tonight's NBA schedule because because there's nothing on. No, I do it reflexively. It's yeah, happened right. at least three or four times where it's like, I don't know, 5.30 our time, Pacific time. And I'll, I'll check 7.51, see what the game is. And then you're like, oh, there there is no game. Can't can't do that. Whoops. Yeah, when you've been doing it this long, I mean, to start the amount of days I've started on 7.51 and scroll down going, okay, you know, here we go. And I'm a I'm a relatively optimistic person. And I have to admit, I definitely was struggling to find any optimism. And I frankly unsure how we're finding any optimism even today. I'm for some reason I'm in a better mood. Maybe we're just 10 days in, you just kind of get start to get used to. Um, how depressing all this is. But I was talking to my dad this morning. My dad is just like crestfallen. He was like really into the Celtic season. He's stuck in his house. He's 71 years old. My stepmother's still working, delivering babies at a hospital. And they're just scared every time she comes home. Like it just sucks. And they're going to have a huge snowstorm back East this week. And, you know, but we were talking about, man, if we just can get through this and by like the end of June, it's all clear. Think about this six month run we're about to have with sports. If we can just get through this and everybody's safe and they figure all this out. And like by July 1st, we're good and and life will start to hopefully get at least somewhat back to normal. And then we would have like this condensed NBA playoffs thing. We would have this four four month baseball thing. We'd have football popping up right away. College football would be there. We'd have all four major tournaments crammed into like a five month stretch for golf. Um, we'd have Wimbledon belatedly. I, I would just be, uh, an embarrassment of riches. And I was just saying to my dad, like, we just got to get to July. We just got to get everybody, like, make sure this is all good. Everybody's safe with minimum damage from all the terrible things that could be about to happen here. And then we get to July and life gets back to normal. And then maybe this will be a fun time to be a sports fan. As weird as that sounds, it's a silver lining. I was really surprised how negative you were last week. Not that this isn't a bummer and and everything that everybody's trying to get through here, but you were just definitive. Like, I think the season's done. And I, I was thinking, like, I wonder if he's just, you know, I know we talk to different people. There's probably some overlap with the people that we talk to, but I just don't think anything's certain. That's why I always thought, like, some of the NFL stuff was weird when they're like, well, you know, they why would they even start the league year? Who gives a shit? Like, right. s- kind, sign agents, 
Who do they rep? I mean, it was really funny when agents were like, there's no reason to push back the league here. We're like, well, no kidding. You don't want to push back potential contracts here uh, because if this were to get really bad, if the economy were to take even more of a hit, then would owners, even though they have a salary cap floor they have to spend to, would they look at this a little differently with guaranteed money and all these different things? So maybe, you know, I don't know what's going to happen as, as we've all said this entire time, but I didn't have a problem with the league year starting with the NFL. Um, people complaining about the optics right now of contracts that would be given out. Like, I, I just wouldn't worry about that stuff. You just go ahead and do business. It's not like people stopped buying houses or, um, you know, other things. So I would, I don't, when I look at the NFL, it, for people to go, well, what, what are they going to do? It's July. Training camp's July. Like, let's see, let's see how April goes, you know? So that's, and that's what I would be doing if I worked one of these leagues and had a, had a voice. And I, I think it's the right thing. That's why I looked at like last week's pod where I was like, man, Bill really thinks like the NBA season is just done, done. I think this whole thing as terrible as it is for everybody is just kind of waiting it out a little bit collectively, whether you're just a guy at home or a league trying to make a major decision. I thought the regular season was done. I yeah, still I feel like, I still feel like the playoffs don't make that happen. I still feel like the regular season's done. I don't think. Yeah. I think they're going to, they're going to have to play some games. Say though, it. Bill. I don't think they can just say, hey, round one, let's go. I don't think they can. From what I've heard, Labor Day is kind of the secret looming deadline for all of this. Like they to basically, be done? They basically have to be done by Labor Day. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. For arena reasons, for now you're going in, you're going against football. Um, you have the networks and the different places, they just have programming in September that they can't audible away from. And I think a lot of the contingency plans that they're discussing right now, Labor Day is like that, that like game seven of the finals would have to be like the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday around where Labor Day is. And then here's the thing. And we've, we were talking about this without ever knowing any of this stuff was even a possibility, but this might really lead to a resetting of how they do the schedule because let's say best case scenario, knock on wood, this can all go and and maybe we play a little five game regular season to end it, um, head into the playoffs, whatever, and it goes all the way July, August. Then they take two and a half months off. They come back mid-December and this becomes the new schedule. Maybe that this will just be the new schedule. I don't know. I'm prepared for anything. I think it's a great idea. Um, the arguments against it are how many people are home during the summer when you'd be having your most important, most valuable um, product. My argument would be even if you had less people at home, the competition would be less, and then you wouldn't be competing with the NFL for two and a half, two and can a half. Can you see months. that my glass? I can. That's Andre the Giant. Is that the is that JYD? So one of my eBay purchases that I love to do is they ma they made these. These are real glasses that the WWE made in the mid-80s. And there's like a John Studd one. There's a Junkyard Dog Studs. one. There's one with all these guys. There's one with Hulk Hogan by himself. And we have like 10 of them in the house. I've cleaned up. Anytime they're on eBay, I get one. This is what I do in my spare time, Ursula. You know what I did do? I did a deep dive on Randy Machoma and Savage. And oh, that's great. I did uh I did appreciate the Wikipedia. I think the first line is Bill Simmons says. Oh, which really? Was, yeah, I don't know. You got to go ahead and check that out. Which wow. by the way, in our pre-show meetings with Van Pelt and I about 10 years ago, somebody who worked on the show almost every pre-show meeting at some point would say, "Well, Simmons says." And that used to really annoy us a lot. Um, uh, I apologize we, on behalf we just, of that guy. He was one of your young warriors. 
And every time we would be kicking around a topic, he'd just go, well, Simmons says. Yeah. And I, I would lose it. Me more than Van Pelt. Sorry. What, what has frightened you the most that you've read over the last five days or listened to or heard about Pro- probably the, our the immediate footage, future? I would say the footage from Italy that I saw today from the hospital, no beds, people lying in the hallway. And that was a little bit of a, you know, I mean, I don't want to say a wake up call. Like I'm doing what I can do. You know, I mean, th- th- people joke that, you know, this is, this is just another Sunday for you. I mean, I'm by myself a lot. The no gym thing sucks. Um, and you know, I, the good thing about Manhattan beach is the beach is so massive that you can go there and you can plop down in a chair and you're not going to be near anywhere else. Like I know that one of the LA stations ran that footage of Manhattan, Venice, and I think Newport where Venice, they were just had full pickup games going. Um, Manhattan beach had like younger dudes with drinking games going on. But like, if you just want to show up to you in the beach, you know, you and your, your girl or your whatever, um, like you can do it, but I'm afraid they may shut it all down because the strand, at least in Manhattan beach is like packed with people running. And then these idiots, these two girls took down the police tape for one of the workout areas and started filming like Instagram videos for their workouts. Or like when somebody decides to do step ups and it's just crowded, you go, you know, you probably have stairs to your house. So, um, it's actually made me dislike some workout people, which I know would, would surprise some people. So I, you know, that's sort of a longer answer, but I, I don't know if this is passive, you know, stay at home thing where it's passively enforced because I'm really scared of what it could be like if they decide, okay, we're aggressively enforcing this because people still aren't taking it seriously. Or Bill, is it just human nature that if it feels like at least here, it's another version of the flu, which puts elderly at high risk, will people be selfish enough to just say, hey, after a month, screw this. Like, I don't want to stay inside anymore. And then you get a factor in like which companies are going to keep paying their people 30, 60 days out. I well, we're going to see. Sorry. We're going to see a lot of selfish behavior. We've already seen it. And, is it going to get worse? Well, we've seen in Florida, the spring breakers who were just completely oblivious to everything that was going on and are just giving the coronavirus to each other. And they didn't really Would you care. have done it? That's the thing. We talked last week. I was such a moron in my, in my teens and early twenties. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I, I think I, there's a chance I would have been selfish about it. I'd be like, oh man, come on. We'll just go. It'll be fine. Young people don't get it. And you say all this dumb stuff. Yeah. But obviously, exactly. uh, you know, Hey, can I complain about the runners for a second? Yeah, please do. So there's been a lot of power walking, especially, um, I'm sure in every city, but I, in LA, there's more people walking around in, uh, in the actual city that I've ever seen before. It actually feels almost like New York. I mean, it's not that many people, but it's just a lot of people walking. You don't normally see this and everybody is keeping a respectful, you know, six, eight foot difference. If you, if you're coming around the corner and there's a sidewalk and people are coming there on the sidewalk, maybe you walk on the street try to keep the four to six feet. Uh, even if you run into somebody, you know, you're talking to them, but you're not talking, you know, right next to them. You're, you're, you're giving a little space. I think most people understand the rules. Then you have the runners and the runners are just like, I'm sweaty. I'm in my own world. I'm going to literally run right by you and I'll come within six inches of you, or I'll be running toward you and you're, they're going to get out of my way. We're going to collide. I don't know what's going on with them. They have their headphones on and they're just like bulls in China shops, just flying down, running, going near people, not respecting any of the distance. So uh, my note to the runners, fuck you. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Obey the six feet. Just because you're running doesn't mean you get to 
You get to not obey the social distancing rules. Oh, I'm jogging. I, everyone stay out of my way. Who the fuck are you? Fuck off. That's my rant. Yeah. Uh, it's like Kevin Bacon and Quicksilver is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you'd yeah, like that. Just because you're delivering stuff on a bike doesn't mean we have to get out of your way. <laughs> We're all here I, together. I was excited to kind of get past, uh, get past some of these injuries, but I, I was on the Rogue website the other day just going, I'm screw it. I'm going to order enough stuff for a gym in the garage. <laughs> and I'm just parked my car outside. Like, I don't care. And then as I was contemplating it, like everything started selling out. So now I don't know what to do um, because they're going to try to get back at it in some form or fashion in, in a week or so. But yeah, the runners, like, like I said, I don't know if this will be a thing where we go, remember everybody really freaked out and everybody bought you know, toilet paper and hand sanitizer and you can't get yourself, your hands on some disinfectant wipes. But I also think, there's another version of this where, you know, people are going to be like, I've saw some pictures in New York city and it was empty in stretches. And I know there's some climate factors here with the virus. So you know, just hanging back and, and trying to do enough. Um, but I know anytime, like I touch anything, I had to drop my car off at something and I'm wiping the car down on the inside going like, all right, I guess this is the new normal, at least for right now. Uh, but I did hear somebody say like, oh, this, you know, the world's never going to be the same after this and arenas and all that stuff. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't think people are going to stop high-fiving in two years when their playoff team wins a game. Yeah, I feel like life will eventually come back, but I'm with you. The Italy stuff and the fact that Italy, Italy was always, me. yeah, it's, they were 14 to 17 days ahead of where we were basically. And that was the fear when like, when we shut down our office almost two weeks ago and when people really started reacting to it, it was because of some of the stuff that was happening in Italy. And now you see um, them just running out of stuff left and right. And what a horrible situation. Doctors choosing between patients and uh, all these different things. Uh, it's, I got to say, I didn't get a lot done last week. Normally, uh, normally when something like this happens or I have a lot of dead time, I, I'm able to compartmentalize and just throw myself into work and be like, all right, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. I was I was pretty discombobulated last week. I, I'm starting to I'm starting to rally mentally now where I'm like, all right, not I'm not letting this like defeat all the stuff I want to do and all the all the plans we have for everything we want to do with our company and all this stuff. Like, fuck this. I'm gonna try to at least come up with some stuff. But man, last week was really discouraging because it really felt like the lights were on and nobody was home from a government standpoint. They were late to react on everything and it and it it started to feel like everything was just happening too late. And even if we got our shit together, it was still too late. And whether that's the case or not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure, but I hope I'm, I hope that's not the case. But whatever I read, I still have no idea what too late means. You know, like I know what the worst version of it is. And then it's like, well, does too late mean, oh, wait, you know, maybe this thing is going to taper out with the weather. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't really know what to believe. I'm sorry. Like I, I, I can read I think the stuff. Two and then I was look, I was looking at one guy's chart. And then a day later, like a, a real guy, a doctor tweeted out this chart. A million people retweeted it. And then he was like, hey, ignore that chart. Like, here's the one today. And I go, well, you know what we we're doing yesterday. I think the South Korea stuff makes you feel like, OK, you know, there's this was this was a pretty quick turnaround. And I don't want to get into all the politics of the whole thing, but it's that part of it you know, is, is the reverse feeling of Italy. Like when I look at some of that stuff, I go, oh, OK, you know. Now, now, like, I feel like we can come out of this thing. I think it's too late. I'm just talking to hospitals only, just equipment yeah. and resources. Yep. And there, you just hit a point where 
you know, uh, I, I want to commend the Washington post and the New York times and, um, some of the TV shows. And the, I think, I think the journalism has been really good. And if you're ever worried about, um, you know, the battle we've had over journalism and newspapers and resources and, um, where is all this going? And now you see like the last couple of weeks where the wall street journal is another one, but places that have really done good work and, um, broken stories, rebuffed public things that people were saying that turned out not to be true. And, and I really, uh, admire those people. Let's, we'll take a break, quick break and then, uh, we're going to come back. Hey, successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million or 10 million to hundreds of million in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools to turbocharge your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. Run your entire business from anywhere. Even if you're working from home with NetSuite, you are covered. Uh, A lot of people are working from home these days, including me and everyone else at The Ringer and our video team right now that is figuring out how to do this podcast that we're doing on Zoom and cut some clips from it. Um, Look, in these uncertain times, NetSuite is a company you can count on every single time. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. It's the world's number one cloud business system trusted by more than 20,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need because it's the best. I was telling my listeners about Tacovas these last couple episodes. Guess what? You know, the boots? Yeah. Tacovas uses NetSuite to run their business too. NetSuite business grows here. All right, we're back. You had one follow-up on the last point I had at the end there. I'm good with your cousin who knows somebody who works in the Pentagon text threads though because that is that is out of control how many people are now connected to somebody inside the pentagon who says martial law is coming yeah like martial law around the corner i thought it might have been true 10 days ago but now i know now i no longer i need more confirmation on who this pentagon guy is because he's got a lot of friends or my friend who has a friend who has a friend who works in an er that's another one Hey, we're going to play a game called uh, NBA What Ifs. This was your idea. If the regular season does get canceled and if everything gets canceled. So we're going worst case scenario. This goes a few months and on top of all the other horrible outcomes of that and how terrible it would be for our economy and and just people going crazy being at home and 90,000 other things, not to mention the... uh, deaths and illnesses and everything else. If this season just went away, what would be some of the what ifs that came out of that? So do you want to go for you? I thought you would do one, then I would do one. We'd go back and forth. Perfect. Perfect. The biggest one is the most disappointing team of the season, and that's Philadelphia. And I don't know what you were supposed to expect from this team, not only with Embiid's up and down approach to the game, uh, as much as I love when it's great. And then Simmons dealing with a significant back injury here. And we'd seen different versions of them. The argument of can they play together? Can they not? It really just depends. Like, are you a Sixers fan or super into analytics? Or, you know, do you do you think that there may be some long-term problems there? And then you add in the Brett Brown factor and just how much of this hasn't fit and Horford having a bad season. If they had had an early exit 
is a 3-6 matchup. Now, I still think they may have got, if they were healthy, I would have picked them against the Celtics in the first round. But let's say it's a disappointing second round exit, which is totally possible, even though I know in a recent pod I talked myself into another version. But that's just them. It's the total unknown. The point of this would be if the season is done and they start new next year, I think Philadelphia doesn't have to answer any of those really tough questions about their coach and roster fit, and they would just run it back looking at this year as an incomplete grade instead of a failure, despite the fact it is a massive disappointment 60 games in. Well, and then think about some of the people that Kenny Atkinson, John Beeline, like if all of this had happened three weeks earlier, those like John Beeline, like let's say this happened right at the All-Star break. He's not getting bought out. Kenny Atkinson, the Nets probably aren't doing anything yet. No way. You couldn't fire anybody. No. You're going to fire somebody? I mean, Beeline apparently gave up money. So that one's like, whoa. Uh, I don't know. I imagine Kenny's getting paid. The Philly thing, who knows? Like, they might have had to do something about Brett Brown before they even got to the playoffs. I'm with you. I don't think anything gets solved. And if anything, this will, this amount of time that's passing here will. I think force a lot of teams to talk themselves into the glass half full part of their situation, right? And not the totally. glass half empty part. Yeah, so because I'm with you. neutral is a positive, right? And most teams end up having a negative result in the playoffs. My biggest what if, and I actually think this is this is my number one out of all the ones on my list. So if they cancel this season and it's just gone, it's D-Day, it's the worst case scenario. Now you have the Clippers coming back next year. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard with opt-outs after that year. <laughs> They've traded seven first-rounders <laughs> and, and uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander basically for this one year that those guys could opt out of potentially. That trade becomes the all-time sink-or-swim trade in the history of the league. They make that trade knowing, all right, we, we at least have two years where we're going for the title here and hopefully more. And now one of those years is gone. Um, I mean, the that irony, might be the biggest one, seriously. Like if it's done and you go, okay, now this year's a tryout to see if these two guys want to stay. And then <laughs> the, the auxiliary piece of that, you have this Clippers franchise that moves from Buffalo in 1978. They're in San Diego six years. They come to LA in 1984. They have never made the finals ever. This was going to be like the year, potentially. This was the year for the LA versus LA and all that stuff. And then potentially a Clippers in the finals situation. And out of all years, this is the year that uh, is in jeopardy. I mean, I talk about like not being able to catch a break. If you're a Clipper fan, black sheep to the Lakers the entire time. You have the worst owner in the history of sports as your owner for three solid decades. And then when everything goes right the first time with the Chris Paul and Blake thing, that never happens for a variety of reasons. Now you have this reboot here and now just the season potentially getting canceled. Unbelievable. What is uh, your next what if? Houston, I will never believe that Westbrook was a player that Daryl Morey was uh, enamored with but I understood the transaction and it was a James Harden Fertitta deal, right? So you factor in that Daryl's always willing to make moves, but I don't even know, like, what if what if they got bounced in the first round? There's a chance Houston gets bounced in the first round. The small ball approach was terrific out of the gate for weeks. 
the Knicks loss, whatever they were due for a bad one, the Clippers loss, you're like, okay, wait a minute, this makes more sense. And then you start looking at their rebounding numbers and they're getting smashed on the boards. You're like, maybe this is actually tiring everybody out because they don't have a big rotation. Maybe this thing was really exciting and fun and, and successful, but it's not a long-term ploy. And Westbrook, even though he's putting up major numbers and he's playing better than Harden, he was taking a million shots a game because everything was wide open for him. So like, how sustainable was that? Now, they probably just start next year with it unless there's some big trade waiting for them. And there's really no big trade unless it's one of those two guys. And I can't ever imagine they're trading Harden. And, you know, look, Westbrook has been so good up until this point. I, I don't even know, you know, like at least the market would be better for him. But whatever this version of Houston was, you could have seen a coach, a GM, a roster overhaul if they lost in the first round. And now with this, if there's no season, it's likely, like most of these teams, we talk about all the changes they should make. Most of them all will just run it back. And there there won't be that that end unless you think that Houston was going to go to the Western Conference Finals or beyond, which I didn't. Well, think about that. So when did it, when did the season officially, when was the Gobert announcement? That was like March 10th, something like that. March 11th. It's a Wednesday. So yeah. Yeah. What is Mar- it? The 22nd now? Yeah. So I'll March 11th. So they could have potentially lost in round one. That would have been five weeks later. And then everybody is getting canned. D'Antoni's gone. Maury's gone. The whole thing. They're just cleaning house, starting over. And now I'm with you. I think not only did they bring it back, they probably would look at the offseason as a chance to say, hey, this style actually works. Let's get better players for that Jeff Green spot. And uh, who are some of the other guys they had? Like Gerald... Joe Green, well, Daniel House. Gordon, Gordon was having a, a rough stretch. Uh, and then Macklemore, you know, whatever. They obviously just traded for Covington. So I don't really know what the pieces could be around it to add to Westbrook Harden if that's what you wanted to do. But, I mean, there's, like, you would agree that this is an anti-Houston to say there's a version of this where they lose in the first round here, right? Like, that's not. Oh, yeah. There's not. I mean, what if they run into the Clippers, forget it. Denver, who knows. But if it were bad, I think the whole thing would get overhauled but I don't even know that that would mean a Westbrook-Harden breakup. But if it were no D'Antoni, if it were no Maury, then I don't think they'd be like, all right, cool, we're going to keep... Like, I would imagine that there'd be a difference of approach here by by the staff and offensive philosophy a little bit. What's your next what if? This is a good one. If the season's canceled and they start it up, say, at a later date, does this mean no one can write a rest piece about the NBA for three years? It certainly seems like a less pressing issue these days. Right. Will rest, will load management still be defended in some corners as staunchly as it's been defended in the last few years if there's no more season and it looks like they have like six months off? I'm going to say it's going to become less of a topic, would be my guess. So double drafts coming in, uh, I think, 2022. Yeah. So I don't know if they roll this, if they rolled this draft over, I don't think they would. I think the teams, Golden State, the Knicks, all those things are like, hey, let's do the draft. We're, we're ready for it. We had a shitty season. We were due. I have a tiny what if. This was really going to be a great summer for Milwaukee. And I'm aware of this because one of my college roommates, Chip Kane, is from Milwaukee after college, went back, lives in Milwaukee, raised a family in Milwaukee. And this was like the summer. It was like Giannis is going to make the finals. It's going to be Giannis, LeBron. And then 
the DNC is coming right after Milwaukee. We're going to be the, we're, we're the center of everything. Finals here, all the NBA people are coming. And then the next month, the whole political scene that's going to be here. It's all coming at Milwaukee. And now both <laughs> things are going to get canceled potentially. Yeah, because Milwaukee, that's the 12th to the 16th, I think, of July. And the only reason I know that is because when I was talking to some league guys, they were like, that's another issue. You know, if Milwaukee were in the, you know, we expect them to do well in the playoffs, you're going to worry about even having a place to play this thing and what you're going to do. Having the political convention in your city, is that a good thing? I get it. It's good for businesses and all that stuff. Did you ever hit up? And it came to Boston when we were younger, right? I think it's is more that, of a, I think it's more of a, they're Chicago, in the shadow of Chicago all the time. And here's this one summer where everything's coming up. It's Milwaukee's a big party in though, the right? news. Yeah. I just can't well, imagine going like, Hey, I'm just going to go get hammered all week with a bunch of people from DC. But yeah. I, I heard it's like nuts, but I just, that's, that's never been on the checklist. I have another tiny what if. So these count as one, these, cause these are two mini ones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you realize the, so let's say this regular season's done. Let's just go with that. Curry, Durant, Clay, and Kyrie combined for 25 games. So four of the 15 most famous guys in the league. Yeah, you could probably go to 11 if you got rid of Kyrie in that because I, I don't think Kyrie's a top 10 player but yeah I'm not team. even saying best yeah. player I'm saying like just most famous people in the league popular when Kyrie's higher I don't think yeah. you even have to go all the way to 15 I mean Kyrie's shoes do great Kyrie's got a lot of fans man so that's uh it's just a it's a it's a weird outcome of the season Curry ended up playing five games this season I know and it was and, so much fun to have him back even in yeah loss. and then it never like, even it happened Right. Like that was the game where I go, oh my gosh, that's right. Like, and he wasn't even great in it necessarily. He had a couple of moments, but I think that also speaks to the depth of the top of this league. Yeah. Like this league is so great right now that you cannot have four of those guys playing. And yet we still have a bunch of guys that we're arguing about and the uncertainty. Like, that's the real disappointment is that with a, a post Warriors NBA for the first time now here in half a decade, it was this like, who's actually going to really step up? I mean, that's the thing that if it ends up being just done, um, that we're denied as much as anything. Yeah. And you and I both love going to basketball reference and checking out the career stuff and things like that. And people just have these weird blip seasons, right? Like MJ had the season, the 85, 86 season. I think he played 17 games. Uh, Bird had the year, the 88, 89 years, six games. It's it. It's done. And you're like 82, 80, 79, 86. And Somehow Curry ends up playing five games. That, so you have Curry, Clay, and Durant, the heart of this three-year finals run that the Warriors had, and they play five games combined. Um, and that's another thing we should mention for the what-if standpoint. If, God forbid, the whole thing gets canceled and we don't even have a playoffs, the Warriors' final streak would still be technically alive. I mean, it's kind of terrible, but 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, no finals and 20. And then it keeps, it keep, weirdly would keep going. I don't know That's, if we count yeah. it or not. We'd have to like have a whole discussion about whether this counts. Sometimes people say you're losing your fastball and I'm like, I mean, you just proved that you you haven't. You just, you're still painting the corners, man. I got to say, I did get a couple of emails from people asking if the streak would count. So I can't take credit for that one. Okay. But that's really good. I don't, I don't think about that stuff. That's funny. Like those kinds of things like, Hey, what, what about this? I'm like, Oh, that's right. I guess that would be it. Maybe Van Gundy be right. Cause when Van Gundy, who I love was, you know, doing the early warriors games going, they're going to win the next seven titles. They're going to be in the finals the next 10 years. And that whole thing. I'm like, dude, come on. Like you've been around sports your whole life. 
Like this stuff always ends sooner than everybody thinks it is. And it Do you have like any more what ifs? One more. Does this put Tatum's career MVPs at the under five now? Because he would have won this year. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I do think this was a bad break for the Celtics because um, I just think odds are Philly is going to be more imposing next year. And I the whole Milwaukee with Giannis in a contract year, that they scare me too. And I, I just thought they were in a really good position in the East. If they just were able to get everybody together and healthy at the same time, I really think they could have done some damage. How about Gordon Hayward's run? Immediately hurt for the season. Come back. This really odd year where it just isn't clicking, even though everybody's saying you're healthy and you just aren't the same. You come back. You look like an all-star. May have made the all-star team this year had he not been hurt again. Comes back. Is kind of up, kind of down. I know the numbers look a little better, but I think there's some really... Watching him in person in both those Utah games when he was at Salt Lake, it was like, what is going on here? And then if this were to happen, cancel season, he'd be going into the fourth year of this deal with all, all Boston fans still going, what, it, what is he? Like, what is this guy? So The only arc that would have been weirder was Chris Sale. Chris Sale Sales. comes in. Yeah. Cy Young um, basically runs out of gas. Then the next year, they win the World Series. He runs out of gas, but then kind of comes up big in the Dodger Series. Then the next year, hurt. Now Tommy John. Extension before, what or like what, Wally was hurt? Yeah, um, we'll never we'll never get the answer for that. Hey, by the way, I don't think he won a Cy Young. Yeah, maybe not. I think he came in it was second. A, it was Cy Young caliber second. season. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Hey, is the novel coronavirus pandemic escalates in the U.S., public health officials are encouraging those who are experiencing signs or symptoms of COVID-19, such as coughing or fever, to seek medical guidance remotely. If you or a loved one are feeling sick or just feeling worried, there is a way to get help without leaving home. Roe is offering free telehealth services for people seeking guidance and information on COVID-19. The service is available free of charge in all 50 states, as well as Washington, D.C., Roe's free online assessment will help determine if you're at risk. And if appropriate, Roe will connect you with a medical provider for free consultation. The assessment was designed by doctors and infectious disease experts and is based on guidelines from the CDC and WHO. Visit ro.co slash coronavirus on your phone or laptop to complete a free online assessment or just learn more. If you're worried that you may be experiencing symptoms, go to Roe dot co slash coronavirus to start your free assessment today. That is ro.co slash coronavirus. I want to do this Sun Sonics 1993 game five. We're going to do a game every week here on the pod. But before we do that, can let's talk quickly about the Tom Brady Wickersham piece today that uh, was on ESPN.com. Wickersham has been dialed in this whole time. I didn't want to believe some of this stuff from him, but I think he's been, uh, he's done a really good job. And it's one of those pieces that doesn't have a lot of quotes in it, but he's clearly talked to a lot of people in an, in the Brady circle and around the Brady circle. And, and it echoed a lot of the stuff that I'd been hearing. The most interesting thing in there that I really had forgotten about was deflate gate and the feel because I remember this at the time. I remember this from the Brady circle, them feeling like Brady got hung out to dry 
that Belichick kind of ran from it because he didn't want any sort of, uh, you know, he was already dealing with the Spygate and the Rams Super Bowl, and everybody already thought he was a cheater anyway. And and with the Flategate, he made it pretty clear, like, hey, man, I'm out of this one. I don't know what the fuck happened. Like, you'll have to ask Tom. Um, and then Kraft rolled over. And instead of fighting the whole thing, he basically took the penalty and t- and gave up a first-round pick and did the fine and, and admitted guilt. And I really genuinely think Brady felt like uh, he got hung out to dry. And it was interesting to see that resurface in the Wickersham piece. I do think that's when things started to turn with the three of them for whatever reason. I'm going to say some things about Wickersham here um, because I got to know him. And I think some of his football features over the last however many years, some of the best football pieces I've read written by anybody. And he's an incredibly likable guy when you're around him. And you could see how people, I don't know, he just has a personality way about him where I'm like, this guy gets good stuff from people because he's not out there trying to burn anybody either. I mean, some of the stuff that they've done in the ownership stuff, like it's clear a bunch of owners call him up. <laughs> tell him what's going on. Yeah. There were times where he and I have talked about the Pats and it was stuff that he didn't use and I would never use, but it was clear like he was really, really plugged in. And even though, you know, being from the area, every time Wickersham would write some piece, it's like, hey, there's some problems with the Pats here. And he would get absolutely torched. I by did not it. just Pats fans. I'm looking at you, but no. But also no, radio, like talk show hosts. That you, I'm sitting there going, like, look, I know, I know the lineup EEI. I know that most of you guys don't have any contacts i mean other than fourier i don't know that that many guys had contacts on the staff and here's wickersham with real contacts throughout a a career of working in the nfl and he's telling you stuff that pats fans don't want to hear and because he's the national espn guy again post spygate with more and all that stuff like i get understand like i know how it um i'm talking yeah, deflate gate, but that was right. The Mort thing was deflate gate. I'm sorry. That was because there was yeah. like the jet source in there that like gave Mort bad info and whatever. Like it turned into this whole thing where Boston fans just felt like, oh, ESPN hates us. And Wickersham was telling you stuff that nobody else was telling you. And he was telling you the truth the whole time. And he got shit on by all of those guys for years. So I feel good for Seth in a way that it's like, oh, yeah, maybe everything wasn't always working out. And this has been pointed out by me all the time. There's teams that get along that suck, and there's teams that have major problems that can still win. And despite the fact that there was a, a disconnect between Bill and Brady, like they still were winning games. So honestly, if I'm a fan, I'm like, I don't care. Like whatever, national guy, right away, write all your stuff. But you're absolutely right because here's Belichick, who can't be bothered to talk about Aaron Hernandez as a serial killer. But then when it came to Deflate Gate, he's fucking. He's it's like it's like a guy on ecstasy for the first time, just chatting away. You know, <laughs> like hey. All right. Well, look, I got some charts. I talked to this physicist and I watched that Belichick thing. I'm like, what is this? Like, what is this? And I, I thought going up to it that Tom would go, look, I like the footballs to be a certain way. You know, guys heat them. Guys have done different things. I didn't really think this was that big of a deal, but I think them going into a Super Bowl, there must have been a decision made by the organization. It was like, let's go win the Super Bowl first and then we'll worry about this later. I always thought there was something to it but the obsession seemed absurd. And I totally agree with you of the piece from Wickersham that it's like, oh yeah, you know what? That probably would piss you off if you were Brady. That Bill who never talks decides to teach a science class that day with the sheer um, motivation being that he's trying to disconnect himself from the entire story. I think it was a series of tiny slights and you're going way back to Dion Branch 
when they let him go in the mid 2000s and Brady had to try to win the Super Bowl in 06 with, you know, Rache Caldwell, the, the famous Jabbar Gaffney, that whole crew. Um, tiny slights that were fine. But I think when, when you start with the Flategate, even like Ben and I watching the Seattle game and they, and after the Butler interception, they cut to the sideline and Brady's jumping up and down, like just completely losing mind. He's so happy. And Garoppolo like is also jumping up and down, hops over to him and Brady just like, he disses him. He wants no part of celebrating with Garoppolo. He goes right to McDaniels and Garoppolo kind of just shrinks away and goes to celebrate somewhere else. So that was clearly an issue. Even, you know, back then he was like the new, the new hot girl that, you know, and Brady, who was on Brady's corner, is like, who's this guy? And uh, I think trading, trying to trade Gronk to Detroit, I don't think that went well. He really well, it didn't. The- I mean, Kern, Kern came on with me and said that was the one when Gronk was headed to Detroit that Brady was like, no. Like, Brady yeah, yeah. Went to Why him are you doing that, this? Right. Um, it was also um, after, because Kern came on, it was like, what? Gronk put a whole like motocross outfit on. <laughs> Belichick was like, all right enough of this. And then apparently Brady, according to Kern, what he told me on the pod a couple weeks ago was that he went to him was like, no. So go ahead. Keep going. Well, the Antonio Brown thing seems like was a final straw thing for him, which is so weird because Antonio Brown is a lunatic. I mean, for that to be the one that pushed Brady over the edge, I think was really strange. But he also had that thing in there about how they never punted in the Eagles Super Bowl. And Brady was, you know, he didn't have a quote for it. He was like, Brady did his job. They still didn't win. And then the Antonio Brown thing, he really wanted this guy. This was his guy. And it does seem like Antonio Brown's going to go to Tampa Bay. Look, I get it. I I get how a long relationship, these little slights start adding up. I know it happened to me at ESPN, not to compare myself to the greatest quarterback of all time, but I look back at some of the stuff I was so upset about when I was at ESPN and a lot of it was fixable. But I think... You know, and you're, you're probably, I'm a, you're a good person to talk to about this. Like, it's not one thing. It's all the little things that add up and they start snowballing and you start to be like, well, fuck, maybe somewhere else is better. Maybe I need to get away from this. And he clearly, for him to go to Tampa, a place that really has no history at all, that's probably the fourth best city in Florida, um, He's going to have your new Florida coach. cities real quick, by oh, the way. <laughs> Miami won. What's two? Winter Haven? Winter Haven? Two? I don't know. <laughs> Does Fort Lauderdale count as a separate thing? Or? Boca? Boca? Daytona? West Orlando? Palm? Orlando? West Palm Jacksonville? Beach? Siesta Key? Gainesville? Tallahassee? I don't know. T- the Tampa one. It's such a weird place for him in his career. But anyway, I, I get it. I just think this whole thing is, it just feels like they all should have gotten in a room and talked. That's but the that's part. the whole point. Like, look, I have a conspiracy thing for you, too. I'm ready to throw at you. Um, Let's hear it. But on the ESPN thing, I could do that all day with you, but it's going to make it sound like I, too, am comparing myself. I'm Brady and ESPN is Belichick. Um, but I, I understand. Like, there was like what I did with that rant with you when we talked about it before he had left. I go, here are all the reasons why he's going to leave because he wants to feel the satisfaction of telling the people that he don't he doesn't feel like they've respected him enough. He wants to be able to say, you know what, I don't care. This may not even be a great situation for me at Tampa, but I'm done with this. And if you can't actually come back and sit down and negotiate with me like somebody you actually want to keep around, um, then then I'm out of here. And you know, when I think about 
Belichick, as I've stated the entire time, you can't tell this guy he's wrong with the way he goes about business. You just can't. But we know that the craft part of this, who, side note, craft, everybody is hooking craft up right now. Like Brady absolutely hooked him up with craft trying to get the media to believe that Tom woke up one day and decided, you know what? I think I'm just going to leave. And, and Bob Kraft's like, no, no, we wanted to keep him. It was Tom's choice. And for Tom to not do what so many other athletes would do a tweet out on Instagram or whatever, tweet out on Twitter, post on Instagram about like, that's not really what happened. Cause that's not what happened. It's all the slights adding up to this whole thing where it wasn't one day Tom just, just stretched out of bed and said, Hey, I'm just going to go check out Tampa for no fucking reason. Okay, all of this was leading up to it. So that craft salesman job right now, as he tries to distance himself from being the owner that let Brady move on, um, that's very obvious and some people are falling for it. And by the way, you want to rip through all the Brady stats, like maybe they're just like, we don't want to do this deal. We don't want to do a two-year deal for you and the whole thing. But Belichick is petty. Do you think there's any part of Belichick where when they basically got rid of Garoppolo because Brady went to craft about it, that Belichick never forgot that. And that also factored in to how he was going to deal with Tom because he didn't get to keep the quarterback around that he wanted to be the successor, although the financial numbers would tell you to have both of them on the same team at the same time um, would be nearly impossible. It just seemed like Belichick is just always going to default to, I don't pay for past performance, period. Sorry. And that's it. And... Brady's like, look, I'm worth this on the open market. And Belichick's, we're not giving you a two-year deal. You're going to be 45 at the end of the deal. We're not doing it. We don't do things that way here. And so it was a fundamental stalemate. And I don't, I, I, I feel like Belichick's probably good with this. You know? If, if you rip through all the numbers of him last year, like it's like, okay, he was bad against pressure. All right, whatever. Um, his overthrows, underthrows, he wasn't really on target. Well, he's actually never really been a guy that's super on target because he throws so many balls away or he throws it purposely low for the incompletion that he wants. Um, his red zone numbers were atrocious. Like whatever they were, the QBR, I think, was at like 40s for his second worst year ever. Last year, they were in the 20s. Um, but then you go, okay, well, what about the weapons? But you can make a statistical argument that over two years, like Belichick may just be going, hey, this is a guy who's in decline and I'm not going to give you this. My argument will be, okay, well, who is playing quarterback? Because now all the Pats media is falling in love with Jared Stidham based on nothing. And I'd, I'd honestly rather so have Jameis. Cool. Um, Post-eye surgery or not eye surgery? Post-LASIK Jameis, I'm, I'm in on. Um, there was one interesting tidbit in one of the pieces I read. And it definitely came from McDaniels or Belichick or somebody around those guys. And it seemed too pointed to be made up <laughs> or turned around. But it, it was basically like they're intrigued by Stidham because of his mobility. And they feel like the league is moving in this specific direction where if your quarterback can't move around and create plays, save plays, et cetera, um, it's too hard to win with the way the league is constructed right now. The way it was phrased made me think that this actually came out of the Pats where they are just looking at the league and they're looking at who the best quarterbacks are. And you're like, you know what? The days of Brady and Dan Marino and Peyton Manning and even Joe Flacco in 2012, like that's not happening anymore. If your quarterback can't move around and you can't take advantage of, of the way the rules are now, um, you have to have a guy like that. So either it's Stidham or they go find somebody else. 
And they obviously didn't feel like Brady, everything had to be so perfect for him to succeed unless he had these awesome receivers. But if you're paying him 30 million, how do you get awesome receivers? You no, can't you know what you can do though? You can do better than none. You can do better than a guy that can't pass a drug test. You can do better than, and you're right on the Antonio Brown thing. I can't believe Brady uh, is that excited about him. Like he's still, I understand what he is as a player, but that guy's as unhinged as anyone right now in pro sports. So why you'd be like, cool, we got him. And to be fair to Bill on this one, I don't think the Antonio Brown decision was Bill's call. Like, I think that was a craft call. It was a craft thing. So, so if Brady should be upset about Brown not being around, honestly, he should just be upset at them not spending the money on somebody else who's good. Hey, let's take Gordon's money and Brown's money instead of having to get everybody to reduce rate, instead of the dented canned goods here where we look smarter than everybody else, how about we just go pay a freaking receiver like a decent amount so that we have somebody, you know, for Brady, you know? And I don't mean we is obviously. I mean, it, I, let's I say, say they, that for you. Let's say they had done the Stefan Diggs trade. Giving up all that, uh, I don't want the bills gave up. I don't know. Diggs is unhappy. Diggs would be his team would be celebrating, they'd have a parade in Minneapolis, and he'd be bitching about not getting enough touches, right? But that's what I'm when people talk about they they didn't get enough help. Like, I actually think they did try it. I don't think it worked out as well as it could have. Sony Michelle is a first round pick, Muhammad, yeah, but you can't second round pick. You can't go into the year saying, Hey, we you know, whenever you're drafting on need. And so many teams do do that. But when it's a specific need, because it's like Gordon's a massive question mark, Brown's a massive question mark. Like, look, the only reason you get Antonio Brown is because he filmed a video post his Raiders disaster. where We got to see it live as it was happening all through hard knocks. That's why you ended up with him there. So I, I just, but, you know, but as Brady got my older, point like, on the trading the, the receivers thing, it's like, I don't know, Hopkins. Let's say they got Hopkins a first round pick. Hopkins is a guy who is a lot like Nikhil Harry, right? He's, Nikhil Harry's best case scenario is he turns into a DeAndre Hopkins guy. This He'll guy who can DeAndre make Hopkins. no, no. I'm saying a guy who can make plays in traffic. He make the over the shoulder catches and things like that. He was never like a blow people away, go sure. down the field, beat two D backs. He was always like a catch balls in traffic guy. I, I I just don't know who is out there that they're or if they had spent 120 million on Amari Cooper, would that have been better for Brady? Is that a good move? Like no. So I'm not saying you have to spend $120 million on a receiver. I'm just saying you don't have to constantly go, we're going to find a way to do this where we have no tight ends, question marks on the well, outside. Well, that's the indefensible a slot thing. Guy, a slot guy who played lacrosse. And again, Hogan's not on the team anymore. I'm just sort of exaggerating for effect here. But yeah. um, unfortunately, you know what the Pats should have done is sign Gurley when he got released for a ton of money, then traded him for Hopkins. <laughs> then maybe no, they I mean, they, they screwed up last year with the tight end thing. But anyway, it happened. He's leaving. But like, if you told me, you call me a week from now and you're like, hey, man, I don't think Chris Long, I don't think we can get him for a season. I'm going to replace him with Antonio Brown. We've gotten really close. I've FaceTimed with him a lot. I think he's going to be reliable. I think we can get 22 Mondays out of him. Me and Antonio, let's make a real commitment. I would have been like, are you insane? We're, I didn't want to have Antonio Brown on one podcast. What are you doing? You wouldn't let nuts? me have him on one? Ah, I don't know. Maybe one. But Brady Brady seems like it's like, hey, all right, I get $25 million, four and a half million incentives, and we've got to sign Antonio Brown. It was like his three conditions. It I makes can't me believe, wonder if he's lost yeah. his mind. I'm I'm really surprised. I'm of, of Brady's run here. Not that, like, I think Brady's the guy that can get along with everybody, so that's always really cool when you can do that as a quarterback, but 
It's almost like he doesn't have internet, but we've seen his posts, Brady's posts, so we know he does have internet. But how how you would want to sign off on Antonio Brown right now, that surprised me. I'm going to make a really important point right now, and you're going to be jealous of it. <laughs> okay. I'm ready and to Kyle, be jealous. Kyle, just get, get your finger on the button. Get ready to send this to the Smithsonian. I think sometimes you can be too great and too popular for too long, and it starts to distort your sense of everything. And we've and Brady's not the only person that we've seen this with. Um, I think LeBron's another good example. Look at LeBron, how he's gone from, he goes to Miami. The way he handled it was wrong. There was nobody in his life that stopped him from doing that, right? Then all of a sudden, four years later, ditches Miami, goes back to Cleveland, comes up with this whole, I'm going to bring Cleveland, I'm going to finish my career in Cleveland here. Obviously, he didn't want to do that. He ends up in LA in four years, and he'll probably end up playing for the Knicks two years from now. I think when you become that successful and that famous and that wealthy, and you have like this small inner circle around you, for Brady, it's like Alex Guerrero and his wife. And it seems like those are the only two people in his life and maybe his agent. And that's it. And there's just adulation constantly. And you're the greatest, you're the best, you're awesome. You, any Instagram post you do is immediately 500,000 likes. And at some point, I think it's really hard to be normal. I don't blame him for looking at this and going, you know what? I'm going to go to Tampa Bay and this is going to be awesome. And I'm going to stick it to everybody and I'm going to play until I'm 47 because I'm Tom Brady and I could do it. And then he tells his wife and she's like, sounds great, Tom. I think you could too. Why not? Who is in his life that's going to be like, what are you doing? No one, no one. It's on point. It's perfectly stated. I totally agree with you because I said you. it about college coaches. You think Coach K can be normal? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with him. I'm just saying like he is a god in his community. And I see it whenever I go to these college campuses where Saban, Saban can't interact with like people outside of it in a way because it's like, see, I like Saban a lot though. So I, I don't want to come off the wrong way here, but like Saban is more than human where he lives and his day to day. It's like this unobtainable level for the majority of us walking around. So then when he runs into somebody outside of that bubble, like he's probably thinking of like, okay, how is this interaction going to go? And then it's like, no, man, I just want to like say hi. And how's it going? It's like, oh, it's like a reset of that's right. Like I'm not, I'm not a God. Now when you're Brady and you're doing it at a national level um, and you're doing it in a, the most popular sport, I see it all the time with these personalities where you'll post something like, look, a lot of Brady's posts are pretty cheesy. Because there's no guy that's going to go, hey, the joke doesn't really land there, man. You know what? This The first person that made me think of this, and I really respect him. I, this is going to sound like I'm dissing him, and I swear Who, to God. Brady? No. Chris Berman. So Chris Berman is just living in middle Connecticut where you've spent a lot of time. He is the most famous person in that whole area for, what, 25 years? He's like oh, the yeah. rolling... He's the Rolling Stones of Middle Connecticut. Any grocery store he goes to, any gas station, any restaurant, any golf course, whatever, people are in complete disbelief that Chris Berman is there. Oh my God, it's Chris Berman. And after a while, you know, you you start thinking, I'm Chris Berman. I can do whatever the fuck I want. And they're like, hey man, the Swami, it's seven minutes. Like we, we're thinking of a couple ways maybe to make this better. It's it, how dare you bring that up to me? I'm not saying he did that, but 
at some point you hit this point where nobody can actually have a real conversation with you to try to help you in any way. And I wonder if that's happened to Brady where, well, I don't think it's the person, but who is the person in his life? who's like, Hey dude, here's, here's a list of all the greats ever who, who here's MJ and the wizards. Here's Emmett Smith and the Cardinals. I'm just going to go through. Here's 27 examples of Jerry Rice and the Raiders that this is like not the direction you want to go. You should either retire or stay with the Patriots at this point. What are you doing? Yeah, see, I don't, I don't agree with that part though. I like, I agree with the buildup and the whole thing. And I, I imagine his, his father for a long time is somebody that's been able to have conversations with him, just like you could have with your father or me. I, you know, like those are conversations we can't have with anybody else, right? But I don't blame Brady at all for going. Even if this doesn't make the most football sense, you're not going to sit here and treat me like a special teamer. You're just not. I know the way you do business, but you're going to you're gonna talk to me a little bit more. And if you're not going to talk to me, then I'm going to bounce because of all the little slights that you talked about, the stuff in the Wickersham piece, all the stuff we've been certain. It just all adds up. And like I said a week ago, I bet you there's a, point, there's a part of this where, where Brady's like, this feels good to call this on my terms for the first time in two decades. Is it going to feel good to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Uh, I think they're going to be, you know, their defense is a lot better. I was going through it and, um, their defense faced the most, like, however it's phrased, like the most important possessions, like their defense faced the most. They were 29th, I think in yardage, but they were fifth in DVOA. They had the worst starting field position of any team in the league because Jameis put them in impossible situations the entire time. So I think my that guy. defense is actually a little bit better. You want, yeah, this is a great question. You want Jameis more than anybody else that's available right now? I Here's the thing. I think there's going to be real value with one of these quarterbacks where you could get Jameis for like one year, four million, something like that. If they, if they're, no, is, it can't be that low. Four. Listen, at some Four. point, at some point, we're out of jobs. And if you're Jameis and you look at it and you go, I could go to the Patriots. I can finally see. I could tell who's on my team versus the other team. I get to be with Bill Belichick. I'm only two years older than Joe Burrow. And I'll do, I'll do a one year deal. I'll do what Tannehill did in Tennessee last year. I'll bet on myself. And if this works out, I could have a $100 million contract. I actually might play here. I know I'm better than Jared Stidham. I threw for 5,100 yards last year. You think Jared Stidham could throw for 5,100 yards in a season like ever? I know he had Ed Evans and Godwin, but I just think he's become undervalued. And, and people got too focused on the picks, but he had other seasons when his touchdown interception thing was, you know, yeah, I think one year he was like 19 TDs, 11 picks. I don't know, man. I think it's I, he was. You think he he's a, done as a starter? No, I don't think he's done as a starter. I think he's turnover prone for the rest of his life. I think the really? eyesight thing is is hysterical. Um, Peyton he Manning threw a lot of turnovers. Had it. Peyton Manning had some really, really, really high turnover years early in his career. Well, I tell you what. When Jameis starts carrying teams into the playoffs, then we can start comparing him to the trajectory of Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning, the first year that everybody everybody <laughs> does that. Everybody whose favorite quarterback has a ton of picks early on. They look at Peyton Manning's first year when he had a million, and then he kind of figured some things out. So Eli had some picks, some picks. Yeah, but and Eli some years. wasn't Eli's overrated anyway. Favre, Favre decided he didn't care, 
like later on in his career and then got mad about it after he retired four times. And then he had that year in Minnesota, which I still think is like one of the most impressive seasons a guy's ever had. Cause he went to the jets just to get to the Vikings, just so he could get back at green Bay. After yeah. green Bay was like, you was retired, great. you retired four times. Like we can't keep doing this every single year with you Favre. but Jameis turned the ball over. Uh, there were, there were questions about ball security when he's at Florida state. I think it's one of those things like you can either shoot or you can't shoot. And I'm not talking about like just a guy who becomes good at corner threes and, or maybe better yet vision. Like guys have passing vision as basketball players, or they don't even think of seeing the game the way the kids, Steve Nash's uh, magic Johnson, those kinds of guys. I think if you are a guy that has a lot of turnovers, you're generally a guy that's going to have a lot of turnovers. And I think he didn't, he fumble 12 times too. So I don't, I don't he know did. why you'd want to put yourself through that. I'd rather I'm see saying, did him. I'm saying one year, four million. I would just want to bring him in a training camp. And if, that if it's work, four it million, work. fine. Right. If it's four million, fine. But the guy that I uh, want them to get is Brissett, but it seems like the Colts are actually going to keep him. I still don't understand what the Colts are doing. Um, let's let's take a break. We got to do recommendations, then we got to do the basketball thing. Hey, cybercrime is on the rise. Complicated tech like the cloud and Internet of Things makes it hard for modern businesses to see and stop attacks. It's time to be the hunter, not the hunted. ExtraHop helps you detect threats in the cloud up to 95% faster and automate response so you can stop bad actors in their tracks, stop ransomware and more sophisticated threats up to 60% faster, expose attackers hiding in seemingly legitimate traffic in real time, stop threats up to 60% faster, ExtraHop, Helps you secure your hybrid enterprise wherever it is today and wherever it goes tomorrow. Automatically detect new rogue and unmanaged IoT devices. See everything in your environment from the cloud to the data center to the customer. Detect threats with advanced machine learning at scale. The Home Depot uses ExtraHop to manage and secure nearly 2,300 remote sites because no data site is more complete and accurate than what ExtraHop delivers. Check out the full product demo, customer success stories, and more at extrahop.com slash BS. That is extrahop.com slash BS. Okay, quickly. Every week we're doing recommendations. A TV show, a book, an older movie, and then a new movie. So let's, let's go back and forth on this. Let's do the TV show first. I have a feeling I know what you're going to pick for the TV show. Take a guess. At that Netflix Zookeeper show. Yeah, Tiger King. Yeah, Already Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic. Are you uh, done with it? I'm I'm th- I'm done with three episodes. I'm already done with it. Finished it. Power through last night. Amazing story. It is a great doc in the sense that just when you think you kind of have it figured out, you're like, what? Like what? Like the next level of this, and then you go through this rotation of trying to figure out who you hate the most because you really don't end up liking anybody. And I know in some ways, like stories are pitched, it's like, well, who am I actually rooting for? And this one, I think you're rooting for the Tigers because everybody involved is brutal, and just you know, so some one guy ends up having a harem, and I, you know, it just. Just I just think these animal people are fucking weird, man. There's no way around it. Like I could never date somebody. That was like, I dedicated the rest of my life to animals. Like, it's great that you care about animals that much, but these people like take it to a whole nother level. And it's, uh, it's a really good piece of work, really good work uh, by the guys that took years to put this thing together because they had no idea that this was actually going to happen. Um, 
that was my recommendation as well. But since you just made the case, I'm not done with it yet, but I watched three last night and uh, was captivated. I just wanted to mention, because I know ESPN is going to show OJ Made in America, I think this week or next week, they're going to reshow. It didn't the start Ezra, already? The Ezra thing, or I think it's either tomorrow night or whatever. But on Netflix, America, American Crime Story, the one where Travolta was uh, Robert Shapiro and Cuba Gooding was OJ. I rewatched that a couple months ago and uh, it's fantastic. It's really, really, really great. I think the combo of those, if you're going to do the OJ deep dive, I would fully recommend uh, do the Ezra one first. Actually, do the Ezra one second. I would do the uh, Cuba Gooding one first and then I would go to the Ezra one. But I think the combo of those is really great. Really good deep dive. Uh, all right. For a book... This is another one that's tied to um, an ESPN thing. I'm going with uh, Playing for Keeps by David Halberstam, which was his sequel to Breaks of the Game, which is an awesome basketball book, um, an essential top five, top six, top seven NBA book ever, and is relevant because it looks like ESPN is going to push up this Michael Jordan doc that my friend Jason Hare is doing, and he's probably listening to this locked into a bunker right now. But it looks like that's going to be mid-April, third week in April, something like that. I would read. So they this. are going to push that up. They are going to. Push I think that they're up. pushing it up. Yeah, that's that's the feeling I'm getting. I don't know the exact date yet, but um, but I would read this book ahead of it because it gets you in the mood for it. And um, the documentary is about that last season, which is also what the book's about. So if you want to be properly so, versed, is that the best Jordan book? Yeah, I don't know how many you've read. I've read all. I've read it. Um, Jordan Rules is still a really good read. Bob Green, who I think eventually became a disgraced newspaper columnist, but he wrote a really good book about his friendship with Jordan that had a lot of inside stuff that I thought was really good. Um, those are probably my my three favorites. There was one that somebody wrote when he was on The Wizards that was a book that I didn't love um, that was just the guy was kind of lingering around the locker room, couldn't get access and just seemed bitter about it the whole time. But uh, anyway, that's my book recommendation. What do you have? If you're not going to, um, if you had that project, that creative project that you've wanted to do your whole life, maybe writing a book, maybe you want to write a script, maybe you want to do, and not a lot of guys telling people they're going to write a play. You don't hear that one a lot. If you can't get it done now, you're never going to do it. Okay, so if you've been a talker for a couple of years saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and you never have, like most people don't, and if you don't do anything, then you need to just remove that from your head of it ever being a possibility because this would be the time where you're going to have more. And I know everybody's situation is different, people depending on you and all that kind of stuff. Um, so story, Robert McKee, which is the book that in the movie adaptation, which I love that movie with Nicolas Cage where he plays twin brothers and um is that chris conley the actor who plays the orchid thief so basically chris cooper called yeah chris cooper chris conley different guy chris cooper is uh, an awesome actor and meryl streep's in it she's amazing and yep. basically Hearing good things about her yeah yeah no i just felt like meryl streep hit this stretch for the last couple of years where it was like all you could only say was that meryl streep is amazing um but I just, the whole thing is, it's, it's this movie that's about this book and this screenwriter that's trying to adapt The Orchid Thief. 
and he goes to these Robert McKee courses, which there's actually a book that is considered one of the better screenwriting books that are out there. It's been out for a really, really long time. And I'll admit that I bought it thinking, here we go. And I bought it Coolidge Corner down at that Barnes and Noble in Brookline. I don't think I opened it for a couple of years. And then I would highlight a little bit. I finally did get through it and it helped me uh, unlock some of the things I was trying to do. Good. A little creative. Yeah. Creative for the kids out there. All right. Older movie recommendation. Last week I recommended and the band played on, which was, is still on HBO on the HBO go. So I watched scent of a woman last week, a movie I hadn't seen in a long time and a movie that I think has unfairly been painted a certain way in the years to follow. Because what happened is Pacino won the best actor. It, was at the height of, oh, if you have to play somebody with a disability or somewhere, like that whole joke got going right around there. Oh, you got to either pretend you're brain damaged or you have to pretend you're autistic or you have to pretend you're blind. That's how to win an Oscar between Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman, Pacino, a couple other ones. And more importantly, Denzel didn't win for Malcolm X. And as the years have passed, that made people really mad. Denzel ended up getting one finally for training day. If you're doing the five-year Oscars game that Fantasy and Chris Ryan and I love to do, even five years later, I think Denzel probably wins for Malcolm X. I think if you're redoing that years later, most people would say Denzel should have won. And maybe if the Academy had been a little more diverse, maybe he should have won. It's a better performance. With all that said, Pacino is incredible instead of a woman. It, and it's, look, he's basically playing blind Vincent Hanna from Heat. Um, yeah, I, he's that's he, perfectly said. Right, he's Vincent Hanna who can't see. He has some <laughs> awesome scenes. He look, it's all the stuff that he would eventually start doing more of the hua and just dialing it up, just for the sake of dialing it up and doing his whole thing. But um, the movie just works. It's really good. I have no idea what happens in the last twenty minutes, which I won't spoil it for the people listening, but. There's this kind of manufactured drama thing that circles around. Philip Seymour Hoffman's involved. And it's like, how is this the ending of the movie? But Pacino makes all of it works. Chris O'Donnell's really good in it, too. And it's a role that I think everybody wanted. I think Matt Damon was going after it. Affleck, every every young actor of that generation, Chris O'Donnell got it. He's He kills in it. The movie's good. And the movie has a couple of really, really awesome scenes. And... I don't want to fully defend the Oscar because I still think Denzel should have won, but I don't think it's a bad Oscar. I don't think it should be lumped into like the Roberto Benigni type of Oscars of like, how the fuck did Pacino win that year? He's awesome and the movie's good and it's a good rewatch. My, I watched it with my daughter and she loved it. So there you go. Yeah, I saw the theater. That was one of those movies you had to go see. I really like the way, um, if you think about like the scent of the woman and how he explains it and how it's this thing. It's actually really cool. It's executed perfectly. And O'Donnell is great in it, but that is one of my least favorite Pacino characters in heat. And I just think it's so over the top and it's kind of annoying that I had those moments where it was the same thing with him in that, but it made more sense. You know, it made more sense because he was this guy with his background, but you're right. It, it, if I saw it, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember in the moment being like, how are they going to end this? How are they going to end this? And they're like, oh, that's how they're going to end it. So I've been I, I watching, won't... I've been watching a lot of great movies from the 70s, 80s and early 90s again. You know why? Because we're all under quarantine. But um, 
it turns out a lot of these movies were really successful and lauded for a reason. Like you watch Shampoo with Warren Beatty. It's like, that's a great fucking movie. It's, re- it's really, really great. And nobody would think to watch it now. But um, my advice would be to, if you're really bored, instead of watching new terrible movies, to go backwards and watch some of the old classics. Anyway, what's your movie? Zero Effect mm. with Ben Stiller and Bill Pullman. It's early Stiller. Uh, it's I don't know if that's Apex Mountain Pullman. Not as far as successes go. Yeah, I've just always loved this movie. I love the tone of it. I love the music. The soundtrack was incredible. The concept was really cool. Where Stiller basically finds Bill Pullman, who's considered like the greatest detective ever, but he's really, really strange. And there are really great lines that it's not a comedy, but it's funny as hell. And yeah, they kind of tie it all around. And it, you know, it has this thing at the ending where you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's how they're ending this. But I've just always liked it. It was always a little off the radar. And for whatever reason, it's a lot of nostalgia for me because I remember the first time I saw it and how into the soundtrack I was. And it reminds me of like this one apartment that I had where this guy over here, two thumbs and not giving a damn, <laughs> so it was uh, it was a good time. Ninety six, ninety seven. Let me double check that. Maybe yeah. ninety eight. Um, ninety eight is ninety eight. I mean, ninety six through ninety nine. There were so many good movies that a lot of them just got fell through the cracks. That was definitely one of them. It did. Yeah. I mean, it's not even remotely like on the radar of, of successes of some of those other ones. But if you like Stiller, you'll like him in this. And you know, the, the whole thing. Pullman's character is a really cool character. It's actually unique, and they did a really good job of it. Uh, for my new movie, I did pay 20 bucks to watch The Hunt because, of course, I did. I really like Betty Gilpin. And Can you I explain d- what The Hunt really is? So, I don't want to give away too much, but it's it's basically a black horror comedy or a black thriller comedy, basically. And there's a couple twists, and it's very clear what it's trying to do. Fantasy did a good job writing about it with The Ringer. Fantasy didn't think it worked as well as... I, I just thought it's my dad used to call these movies five o'clockers where it's like he would be driving home from my dad was a superintendent for years and years and on his way home. Sometimes he wouldn't want to do the traffic. So he would go see what the five o'clock movie was, but he wouldn't <laughs> want anything too intense. So like, or too too where he'd have to use his brain too much. So it'd be like Steven Seagal, Mark for death. Great. That's a five o'clocker. Um, <laughs> 21 Bridges, a classic five o'clocker, like almost a little overqualified. The Hunt is a five o'clocker. It's just like, turn your brain off for an hour 40. It's trying to do some stuff with like Trump America. And um, it's trying to be super clever in a way that's kind of unintentionally funny as well as intentionally funny. But I really like Betty Gilpin. And and um, I just, I think she's a star. That was why I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked her. I didn't love the movie, but I really liked her. Uh, all right. So what's what's the rule on a new movie? Does it have to be brand new? Because I don't. I don't no, think it could I've be seen... like, or you, or you could do something from the last two years. First Man, then with uh, okay. Gosling. It's on cable now. The first scene is incredible. When he's trying to break. You know, he's trying to shoot up into the atmosphere and then come back down. The anxiety you will feel, nothing is better than the anxiety that you feel in Sicario's border crossing scene. That's one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. But the opening of First Man, where it's just boom, you're just right in it. And Gosling's so good at everything he does. 
And I would uh, say that one's one that got lost in the cracks. And, and some people just don't like it because it slows down so much at the end. I love the movie, but I, I love the open of that movie. Okay. There you go. All right. We're taking one more break and then we're going to do, um, we're going to do a quick rewatchables of 93 Sun Sonics and then we're done. Hey, I wanted to take a quick break to thank everybody who donated to the little campaign that I ran to feed people back in Boston with the Greater Boston Food Bank. We raised over $52,000 and counting. And if you want to uh, check it out, you can find the link on my Twitter feed. Uh, we raised between me and the 52,000, we're over 100,000. Um, but speaking of that, that is a part of the Feeding America site, which um, the Pod Save America guys and a bunch of other people have talked about. But if you want to donate, they can help you find food banks in your area or any, any place close to where you live and you can get people some meals. A lot of people are struggling out there. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, you know, restaurants have pretty much closed, but a lot of them are still doing takeout and delivery. Please eat, support your local restaurants. Don't be afraid. Um, everybody is taking precautions out there. Uh, we, we are in a situation now where everybody needs to chip in and that includes supporting the local businesses around you. If you're going to have to eat, if you're going to get a pizza, um, sandwich, whatever you want to have for dinner, um, don't be afraid to support your local restaurants. Listen to Dave Chang's podcast this week as well, because he's going to talk a lot about that and, uh, and some stuff you may be able to do. Stay safe out there as always. And uh, thanks for listening. Let's go back to Rosilla. Okay. We're, so we're going to end every podcast. We're going to do a basketball game. We'll try to keep this to like 20, 25 minutes max. Yeah, right. No, we really will. We're going to do it. So we did Suns Sonics Game 5, 1993. To set the tone, Charles Barkley gets traded the summer before in one of the all-time 30 cents for a dollar trade. Brutal. Philly, they didn't even get a pick. Yeah, Philly gets Hornacek, Andrew Lang, Tim Perry. Tim that's Perry. it. Temple. Uh, we had no internet back then. It was just people in bars going, can you fucking believe what Phoenix gave up for Bakley? Like, uh, and he goes to the dream team. He's the breakout star of the dream team. Everybody's like, oh my God, Charles Barkley. Didn't realize he was this good. And people were like, yeah, if you watch basketball, you knew the guy was fucking a top six guy for years. So anyway, he goes to the Suns. At the same time, Seattle has this Sean Kemp. They luck out with him, draft him in high school. They, it turns out to be a gem. Gary Payton's second pick in the draft. Uh, they have all these good veterans. Sam Perkins, Derek McKee, Ricky, Ricky Pierce. Pierce. Yeah. was awesome in that series. And the Suns have Thunder Dan Marley, really at his apex, Kevin Johnson. Um, and then this weird hodgepodge pseudo small ball team. Tom Chambers advanced in age. Danny Ainge advanced in age. There in the Western Finals, in the East Finals, is the famous Knicks-Bulls bloodbath that leads to the Charles Smith game. The game before this game, game four, Knicks-Bulls, MJ puts up the 55. He's not talking to the media. Then this game happens. The next game is Charles. I mean, this is an unbelievable stretch of basketball. Also, my favorite, uh, I think the, the most entertaining basketball season of all time. If you go through all the factors, I think this brought the most to the table. The reason I wanted to do this, um, just A, it's a super entertaining game you could find on YouTube. B, the Draymond thing with Barkley really pissed me off because Barkley's just been on TV now for 20 plus years. And now there's this inference that he wasn't a great player because he didn't win a ring. Somehow the rings culture thing has taken his career hostage. 
And the reality is he was an incredible basketball player. He was top 20 all time. In the 93 year, MJ should have won the MVP because MJ should have won the MVP every year. But but Barkley was the most reasonable MVP pick of anybody who actually took a Jordan MVP. And he's awesome in this game. He puts up a 42, 15, and 10. He plays all 48 minutes. It's a must win. And I really enjoyed it. And I love Charles Barkley. I just really loved him as a basketball player. So there you go. Yeah, Barkley, I know you know this. He's my favorite athlete of all time. I don't know why uh, this happened to me at a young age, but it probably influenced by my father where I just loved people that I knew exactly who they were and how, how who, like, okay, I've heard Barkley talk for a few minutes. I know exactly who this guy is. And it wasn't just his game that he was shorter than everybody else and was dominating players bigger than him and had this explosiveness for a body type that didn't make any sense at all. And the joke's like, hey, if I were 6'7", I'd be illegal. Because people think he was like closer to 6'4", than he was actually 6'6". Yeah. And I just loved him. And I loved that that idea with him on the Sixers with Moses forever. And it, it wasn't going to happen. Um, so when he got traded... This year for me, as my senior in high school, I was like, this is it. Like, and, and the Jordan's just waiting for everybody. Like, everybody that had was, was a fan of one of those other five or six great players in the league. Like, there's this dude, Jordan's just such a different. I was going through some of his stuff today, like, just laughing my head off looking at some of Jordan's numbers, but knowing that, like, okay, that guy's waiting for him. But the Suns go 62 and 20. Barkley, the MVP, I look, I'm, I'm biased, but I agreed because also part of the storyline there that he shows up to this Phoenix team that still was pretty good before he got there, and they go on this run. Now, the start of their playoff run, they lost the first two games in a best of five to the Lakers. So in the first round, here's this team that maybe has the best chance of the three, including L.A. and Portland, that are going to face Michael in the finals, and they're down 2-0 to the Lakers. And Kevin Johnson missed one of those games. And he had some real up and downs throughout this entire playoff run that I know you want to get to. They come back, they beat them. Um, and they're back. And that and was forth. and that was a running on fumes Lakers team that really, you know, it's it's worthy. It's AC Green, it's Byron Scott, it's the tail end, but they have so much championship DNA at that point. It was really honorable how they uh how they battled the Suns. Like they almost beat the Suns. They really did. Yeah, they, they almost beat them. The Suns get through San Antonio. And then you have the Seattle series where Barkley's, you know, look at it. Kemp was was different. Like Kemp was a rarity because he was this straight out of high school kid, but he was also at like a community college there for a little bit. He was the 17th pick. And when you watch this game, are we ready to get to the game? Because I'm not going to go. I I know you're kind of lead dog on this thing, so I don't want to interrupt anything that you're doing. Yeah, the only thing I would say is Barkley beats Robinson the previous round. With that shot. At yeah. The top of the key. And Robinson yeah. at that point, people are wondering, is he going to be the next great center? Is it going to be him or Shaq? Then Barkley takes him down. And then in the other series, the Rockets and Sonics have a bloodbath. And that's Hakeem 93, 94, 95 is arguably the best player in the league for, for that three-year stretch. You know, people are like, wow, when MJ left, he left this crate. It's like Hakeem was like way, way up there. I had him in the top. I think I had him like 12th or 13th in my uh, in my pyramid. But Seattle takes down Hakeem in a game seven. I did a thing in my book about the MVP race that year because I thought it was really one of the best MVP races we've ever had. Barkley wins it. He had 59 first place votes. Hakeem was second. He had 22 first place votes. Uh, votes. Hakeem that year was 26, 13, and four. First team all D. 
The Rockets won 55 wins. He was the only all-star on the team. He had 150 steals and 342 blocks. So, yeah. so combined, he almost had 500 steel blocks, stocks, I call him. And then Jordan, he just casually puts up a 33-7-6. and six. Um, 50% shooting. They win 57 games. He's first team all defense. So you have three guys at like the pinnacle of their careers and Jordan ends up finishing third. And now it seems dumb, but it wasn't as dumb at the time. No, it wasn't because that's not, it's hard to retroactively live in the story, or I would say not retroactively. It's hard to go 20, 30 years removed and remember what the feeling was at that time. And the feeling was that Barkley shows up to Phoenix and, and they have a real chance. And it game. was the best, it was the best narrative too, where it's like, yeah, Barkley, that's what I mean. He was right. trapped on these bad Philly teams. He finally gets better teammates. He changes conferences. He's in the best shape of his career and was awesome. And people were like, this is great. This is somebody that is friends with Jordan. He's not going to be afraid of him. He'll go toe to toe with him. And he did in the finals. Uh, the rest of his team didn't show up as well. So, um, so just quickly. So we had that Phoenix. I just want to hit a couple things from this game. I think of Phoenix as like an early small ball team, but you watch this game and it was really like Mark West, Oliver Miller. They played a center most of the time. I think if you took the team that they had now, um, you, you took that team then and put it into now basketball, they just would have gone completely small, right? They would have they would have had way more Sab three point shooting. Sabalos uh, is still on the roster, and then Tom Chambers is still on, despite you know, and he put up some massive numbers in some of the previous years, but he was on the decline a little bit. I mean, it was so weird that he subs in like halfway through the third quarter of this game and he hadn't played at all in right. this game, even though he's getting some run in some of the other ones. But you're right. It was Mark West as the starter and then Oliver Miller, who's this rookie who you can see. Uh, I don't know what people remember of Oliver Miller, probably just being overweight, but you could see he was this incredibly frustrating player because he, he was a great passer. He, he was had some great instincts, but then he'd also have these mental lapses where you'd be like, what are you doing? And you can see rewatching this game. He's kind of like the son's Mario Chalmers, where Barkley is killing everybody on the post, no matter who they throw at him. They're sending triple teams at Barkley sometimes. They double them sometimes. They don't always get there to the double. And Miller would go to post up behind Barkley, where Barkley's already on the block, and Miller's trying to post behind Barkley yeah. towards the rim. And Barkley's like, what are you doing? I and mean, that's like 101, get out of the way. And Miller does it twice. And then Miller has a bad defensive thing where he makes the wrong call, and Ainge starts getting on him. And you could then then Miller would have this amazing pass that you wouldn't think any center could make. So they West files out of this game. They had to bring Miller back in, but you could see Miller was somebody to like. If this guy ever figures it out, and unfortunately conditioning be a big part of that, Miller never really did. And I think if you take this team now, Chambers is just shooting threes, and they probably use him. Yeah, and or you just go super small with Barkley, and you just put another shooter out there. I think they would have tried to create way more space for Kevin Johnson. It was interesting. One of the things Seattle was doing in this game, they were double, they're basically yeah. double, double team trapping him at midcourt to try to get the ball out of his hands. And the Suns didn't know how to handle it. Kevin Johnson is terrible in this series. And it carried over the next series because his first 10 playoff games this year is 20 and 9, 53%. So Seattle starts fucking with him. And you look at this nine-game stretch. The Seattle series goes seven. They end up winning in seven. The famous game where they shoot like 70 free throws. They, the Seattle fans are still pissed about it. 
in the first two finals games, when he gets benched in game two for Frank Johnson, those nine games, he's 14 and six, 42% field goal, almost four turnovers. This is a guy who threw the playoffs in 90. He was 21 and 11, 92 playoffs, 24 and 12, 93. He was down to 18 and eight for the whole playoffs. 94 he was 27 and 10, 95. He was 25 and nine. He was kind of the, I would compare him to the, I think he was the Kyrie of that generation. This guy who was just, there was nobody like him. He was incredibly talented. It was unclear how anybody could even guard him. And yet it was really frustrating for whatever reason. And he, yeah, he had, hurt a lot. Yeah, he was hurt. So I don't, you know, there's always, I was going back and reading it this morning because he missed the first game there against the Lakers. I'm going, all right, well, was this this lingering thing? But he was really good against San Antonio. Hell, he played in that triple overtime game in Chicago in the finals. He played 62 minutes, okay? Uh, but he had really bad games against the Bulls, 4-13, 8 And then in this game in particular, even though he ends up with uh, 10 assists and 13 points, that's not the game he had. Because that trap, you were great to point that out. Kind of like what some teams do, like when Miami got Trey Young in one of those games months ago now in the regular season where they sold out to be like, hey, let's just screw this up at the top and then see what happens around it. Phoenix did a bad job. They just, they just weren't, they didn't ever really kind of adjust to it. And Kevin Johnson kept dribbling into it the whole time. Yeah. So, it, you know, when Curry, they ran a trap, Curry's first ring against Cleveland, they ran this double at him. And then once Curry kind of figured out what to do, like, let me get the ball out of my hands quicker than they can defend me. And then I'll just run through some stuff and get the ball back. And it sounds like, hey, why can't you just double again? Well, that's just kind of the way it works. Like, it's easier to double. We see you about to cross half court. We know exactly where to go at you as opposed to losing you in all the traffic of a half court set. And in this case, like, Kevin would just kind of get bottled up and I'd always be looking for like that third guy. And it also speaks to just how different this game is, is that now you'd be so afraid to trap like that all the time because there's more shooting everywhere. Yeah. You'd have you know, guys in both corners just begging you to do that. You could have did yeah. that back then. Also, Seattle had a really long, athletic, frustrated team to play because McKee, you know, was one of the best defenders at that position. Perkins, in 93, at least, still was pretty athletic. Peyton was a fantastic defender. Uh, Kemp was athletic. Like, it, when they dialed it up in the second half of this game and turned it into a track meet, you would have thought that would have been great for the Suns, and it was the opposite. It was no. actually, like, really bad for them. And uh, and Kemp is so electric. It, my favorite thing about this game, it, I don't need to be sold on Barkley. Like, Barkley's done this dozens of times where you're just like, oh, my God, this guy... He plays all 48 minutes. He does everything. He's, in the first half, he had 24 points and like eight rebounds, six assists, something like that. But Kemp, he might have been... I, I still think Derek Coleman was probably the most talented power forward I ever saw just for like who had the total array of gifts because um, he could shoot threes. He could post up. He was a great passer. He really had everything other than like a kind of like drive. I would say Rasheed Wallace. Yeah, he's Rasheed another Wallace. one. Yeah. These guys that are just tantalizing but had all the gifts. You watch Kemp, and and it's kind of hard to believe Kemp didn't become an all-time guy. In this game, he doesn't, he gets two fouls in like a minute to start the game. He doesn't score until the second quarter. He finishes with like 33. He's unstoppable. He's he has a huge turnaround with like two minutes left. Uh, that is like just an adult professional Hall of Fame kind of shot. Not to mention all the stuff around the rim. And I, what a tragedy that that guy, I know he had a lot of personal problems and 
the money stuff was an issue for him and things like that. But what a tragedy that his career didn't turn out better. And no, it still I mean, turned out pretty good. Think about what Kemp was, though. So you have this run. It's 93. They get to the finals in 96. Now, they were down. I forgot because I was looking up MJ stuff. They're down 3 finals. nothing. They're down 3 nothing. So, you know, people kind of have done this thing where it's like, hey, that Seattle team was really good. You're like, yeah, they're really good, but they're also down 3 nothing. So, like, that series was over. He had one more year with Seattle and he was at Cleveland at 28. Like that's that was like oh that's right like I remember him being on Cleveland and he put up his second year he put up some really big numbers when he was in Cleveland but he was a year after that team was in the NBA Finals losing to Jordan like everybody else did he had one more year in Seattle than he was out of there uh, his run was basically ninety two to ninety seven and yeah because ninety two was his coming out party they made the playoffs they had some fun ninety three was when it was like oh this guy is going to be a Malone Barkley type. This is, you will be able to build your franchise around him for the next 15 years. It peaks in the 96 finals when he was really a problem in that finals. Like he was probably the second best player in that series. And then they did the whole thing. They paid Jim McElvain. They gave Jim McElvain, like, I forget the number, but it was absurd. 40? It was like $30 million or something. Yeah. And Kemp was underpaid and it just sent Kemp into this spiral. And his career was never the same. And they were never, you know, they this this Malone Stockton type partnership he was gonna have with Gary Payton. It just kind of kind of fell apart. But he's he's awesome to watch. The other guy, the other big winner of this game was Dan Marley. Do 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 a minute on Dan Marley. So Marley was somebody that, you know, played at a smaller school and would have fit in perfectly in today's game, but he is absolutely on fire in this game. Ends up with eight threes, which is at that point the record for most threes in a playoff game, the record now is still only 11. So Marley's having like a 2018 kind of game when yeah. this stuff didn't happen. So this this was like landing on the moon to see a guy shoot this many threes, and he didn't miss. I mean, I think he only ended up missing one. Maybe there was a second miss in there a little bit later on in the game. Dick Enberg was on fire with the zingers on this one. He goes, I don't know what they serve at Marley's restaurant, but I hope they come in threes. And then he, <laughs> he just magic laughs so hard because Enberg and magic are on the call. This one, we got to get to that at some point. Yes. Uh, and then Enberg was like, Hey, that, that three joke was kind of good. Let me use that one again. He goes, whatever they're serving over at Marley's, I hope they serve it on trays. <laughs> so, um, Marley, Marley saved them in this game because as much as it was all Barkley. Okay. And whether it's Barkley in transition, which is kind of funny that you bring up the Draymond thing, because Barkley in transition was a lot like Draymond. Like the great part about Draymond is not only can he defend everybody, he's a better defender than Barkley is and how uh, multiple he is, but Draymond getting the board and going and then finding you and setting you up. That's what Barkley did. If Barkley didn't want to score, like he would set everybody else up. And so he's left block. And whenever the double would come, like they were trying to run as much as they could through Barkley. And then there was a stretch in the third quarter where Barkley wasn't getting it. And then they were just bad at it. Like Kevin Johnson couldn't throw an entry pass to him. They couldn't figure it out. They had a couple turnovers that were forcing this. So then they'd go away from it. And Marley carried them there in that third quarter. And then he had a dagger one at the end of this thing. And Marley's this big, like well-conditioned, can run all day kind of guy that's pulling up from three in a way that no one really did. I mean, there's only a few guys that would ever do that. And for him to do it in game five, uh, that was the kind of thing like you'd be talking about the next day going, how many three-pointers did he make? And if you look at the most threes ever made in a playoff game, the record's 11, but his his at eight, I think he's one of like two or three guys that have done it before 2010. And that was in 93. Yeah, I had he led the league in in threes that year and it like wasn't a lot of threes. It was like 157. <laughs> and yeah, right. I mean, they just he tied with them. Reggie Miller, but 
Yeah, I was looking at his stats. He was probably taking close to five a game during his heyday in 93 and 94. And now that would be 12. And yeah, he's it was now, the number one. It was the number one offense in the league too. offensive efficiency, like the run and gun thing. You're right. But they would be way too big today. Um, but Marley was part of that. Sorry, I interrupted. Did you see how many threes they made in the entire series? Um, of 30, that series? 36. <laughs> so he made a 25% of them in one game. Yeah. And it, what's weird is in the moment, I felt like that was a three-point shooting team because of him and age. Oh, man, those guys, they're firing them up. They have two white guys. Yeah. And Indiana was another one. Where Three. They had per- Indiana had Reggie Miller in person. It was like, man, these guys are bombers. And then you look at the stats and they were averaging like <laughs> four threes a game. It's totally different. Marley was definitely a, a ahead of his time guy. I think if Absolutely. you if you just time machined him and put him into the league in 2013, he would be a $20 million a year guy. And he had a good run. He had a good 90s and he rejuvenated himself a little on some of those Miami teams that never quite got over the hump. But uh, so that was cool. And then Ricky Pierce was another revelation. I forgot how much I enjoyed his game. Just a classic old school. He, he's three for three on threes from this game, but is a guy now that would be taking eight or nine threes. But back then, they're running plays for him to get him these 19 footers. Plays that don't exist anymore. It was like, there was one play in crunch time where they're coming out of a timeout. They're like, we're going to run the Ricky Pierce play. We're going to get him an open 18 footer. It'd be great. We'll get two points out of it. And now nobody thinks that way, right? No, I mean, Marley, here's Marley who makes eight threes in this game, sets a record. He had a three. He up faked, stepped in twice and took a long two. (laughs) You're looking at it now going, what is he doing? And that's what everybody did back then. But there's still so much of this game that's played below the free throw line. Like oh, yeah. You may have one matchup that's extended beyond the perimeter, but there's just a mass of bodies down there. Is everybody's figuring, like, how can we kind of like Kemp? That's what made Kemp really good is Kemp could get it kind of like five feet out, like five feet up from the baseline, five feet from the center of the paint. And he would just cut so hard, one, two power dribbles in, and then get up over everybody and finish up at the rim. And there wasn't like any play to it. It was just that I'm going to be more physical and I'm going to be able to finish some of these things off. But in this game, the transition stuff is where you thought Seattle was going to win it. They were so good in transition. They were beating them up on the glass. There was no offensive boards for Phoenix, it felt like, for long stretches. And whether the turnover problems, because Kevin Johnson was turning over, they had that stretch, like I said, they were trying to get to Barkley. It was a total mess. And so, like, Barkley had this lull after that big first half and then turned it on later. But that's where Seattle There's, would just get out and go. And they made they made Phoenix look bad. Like, they were running them, and Phoenix couldn't do anything with them in transition. They were bad in transition. Yeah, if you're going to watch this game at home, I would you could jump in basically halfway through in the second quarter and the Suns go on this really great run and Barkley's just out of his mind. And then Kemp starts battling back and you, you can skip the first, I would say, quarter and a half of this. Barkley for the series was 26, 14, and four. Um, for the season, 25, 12, and five, only Wilt, Kareem, and Giannis ever did that with 50% shooting. I mean, you're talking, this really was like a, a great, great, great season that unfortunately coincided with this unbelievable uh, MJ season. Um, we got to talk about Dick Emberg and Magic Johnson. So there's two feeds. There, I mean, I'm sorry. There's two full versions of this game on YouTube. One of them ends abruptly with like five minutes left. The other one runs entirely. The one that ends abruptly 
has all of the pregame stuff and the entire halftime show, which is Bob Costas, Peter Vesey, and Quinn Buckner. I have no idea how Quinn Buckner got on a national show, but Vesey, no hairpiece for Vesey, by the way. Uh, and he's dropping bombs about coaching searches and how Magic was in in the running for the Clippers coaching search, but then it fell through and died. And then they just go right to Magic at halftime. And Costas is like, Magic, what happened here? And Magic's like, you know, I just, it wasn't something I would have done unless uh, I had a piece of the team. I'm not interested in coaching and unless I can also get a piece of the team. And I'm watching this thinking like, Magic went on to become a terrible coach. <laughs> like, can you imagine if somebody had given him a piece of the team to coach? He lasted like 16 games. Remember that? It's an incredible yeah, no, time I do machine. Remember. Yeah. Just no, that it, part. I just wonder how much it would have altered the Lakers part of his his timeline if all of a sudden this guy that's like Mr. Showtime, Mr. Laker owns a part of the Clippers. I don't, I don't think, know. I think he's such a smart people guy. He probably spent an hour with Donald Sterling and and was like, there's no way I'm hitching my boat to this guy. But Enberg and Magic are doing the game announcing and <laughs> it, it's, it's rough. Enberg, I'm not sure how he ended up doing NBA games. I think Mar was this when Marv got sent away, or was that later? I don't remember Marv's timeline. Uh, Enberg is not. I I'm trying to be trying to be nice here because I, I just know like Enberg's so beloved. Oh, he's but, an icon. He's a football guy though. But it's it's just like the guys that have fouls, and I'm like, does, is that his fifth? Was that who the foul was on? <laughs> just basic <laughs> stuff where you're like, well, who was the foul on? And like, what well, what is going on here? Um. You know what, when I was you know growing you, up in the late 70s, him and McGuire and Packer were like the first iconic announcing team. But that was in the late 70s. And yeah, I think and, they were like, McGuire, oh, Ember could still do this. And it's like, no, not really. Well, that happens. It happens. It definitely happens with play-by-play -play guys forever. Like, you'll just have a name and you sort of have this voice that you remember something and then you're doing it. So if he was thrown in and he hadn't really done basketball, that's fine. But it's really, really choppy. But here's, here's what I'm going to bring up. You once wrote after Tom Cruise did the Oprah couch thing, and it was like the first time where everybody just kind of looked at each other and was like, is Tom Cruise nuts? Remember that? And you wrote, hey, you know what? Now that we've seen this, let's go back and examine what we've known about Tom. And what Tom has really told us is that he's been this guy the whole time. Like, it was really smart the way you did this thing about Tom thank Cruise, you. the way you wrote this. I don't even remember, but thank you. This Watching this game and have Magic do color, like there's <laughs> one part where Westfall doesn't call a timeout. It's 30 seconds left. They're up. And Magic says, Westfall must really know his players to not call a timeout here. Well, he, they've been his players the whole year. Like, it's yeah. the end of the year. And yeah. they're, like, I'm not getting, I'm not making that point to be like, oh, he said something wrong, because that's not entirely fair. We're talking 20, 27 years ago here. But the Magic tweets... This was a live audio version of the Magic Tweets. <laughs> it's cliche magic, karaoke. Right. Is that Magic has been this guy the whole time. It's just that the tweets solidified it. It was in writing that he'd send on him. And we're like, oh, he's, he's just making some kind of generic points here. And that's what it was going back, listening to Magic do this game where I was they, like, oh, this is the org. Like, this is the guy that tweets. There's no difference. And everybody loves him. Everybody that's ever met him and all that kind of stuff. So, like, I don't want to make this, like, sound nasty. 
But it just was, uh, and then Magic probably hadn't done a ton of games. I don't even know how many games he had done at that point because he had, he had just left too, really. They right? they start the game and and Dick Emberg asks him, Magic, what word would you say is the key to today's game? And Magic goes, aggressiveness. Whatever team is going to be more aggressive is the team that's going to win today. I'm like, is that? Is that really how this is going to play out? Whatever team is the more aggressive. And it just goes from there. It is, I got to say, I en- I used to enjoy it at the time. And as somebody who like wanted to be a columnist and make jokes about the announcers and stuff, Magic was a godsend back then. Um, I would much rather hear Magic announce games than like Hubie Brown. And, and Whoa, have, that's not like, going to be popular. I, I don't care. Um, but the stuff about, well, it's winning time and Charles is a winner. And in winning time, winners win. And I, I don't know. I got to get a kick out of it. But, but here's, like, think about this. Did you ever spend any time back then ever thinking, wow, Enberg and Magic aren't really that great right now? Never. It never even crossed my mind. I wouldn't even think I, about it. I got to say, you- I, I, did, I did used to think Magic was pretty bad. The other one was Dr. J was a studio analyst maybe two years earlier. And he was also legendarily bad. The, the bottom line is most of the legendary players are terrible as TV guys. Okay, so here's my point, though. Like, you think Monday Night Football gets ripped? It oh, does. Yeah. Magic would but, have had trouble in this, this era. This would have been, if this game happened tonight, people at home would have been losing their minds that this is what was happening. And maybe Enberg, you know, not being around basketball as much, and that makes it tough for Magic or whatever. But it was... I'm I'm just sitting here, you know, watching the game again and going, whoa, these guys would be getting lit up if this is what was happening today. I just never remember being younger and spending the whole night freaking out about who's doing the game the way we do now. It's it's far more obsessive. It's it's way nastier. Um, and you know, it's not always fair, but it would have been it would have been a rough night for those two in today's world. I really enjoyed the game. I'm glad we watched it, and I think this was an effective segment and a good and a good place to end. You're doing uh, you're doing your. I podcast have one more thing. Week. Oh, let's I have hear one it. more thing. Okay. Let's hear it. This game, almost no complaining, the entire time of Game Five of Western Conference Finals game. And you know what? I know it's going to shock everybody. It's awesome to not watch guys complain the entire game. Uh, there was a couple times with the uh, with the coaches, Carl Westfall, getting into it a little bit. There was a moment late in the game where Chambers gets called for what I thought was kind of a bad fo- foul by Joey Crawford, and it was hilarious because Crawford then stopped. Chambers like jumped and swung his arms, and then he walked away, and it was over. And Crawford still is stalking him, and Barkley goes to like cut Joey Crawford off to be like, "Hold on, we've got it." And they're telling Chambers to calm down because they even magic on the calls. Like you never know what Joey Crawford, like he would tee somebody up right now. Yeah. Mo- like if you were to call a technical after that in this massive moment, like it would have been such an all time Joey Crawford tech. I think Javi's on this game too, as well. There's no complaining from the players except for a couple little things here or there. And it was great. And then one final thing, one charge was called. And I think there were only two times that anybody even tried to get a charge. It was beautiful. Now, the rest of the basketball, the defenses are, they're losing people all over the place. The myth about how the guys today couldn't play back then, the Warriors would beat teams by 50 fucking points if they played <laughs> in this kind of game. I'm telling you right now, because defensive lapses happened way more back then than they do now. I'm serious. So as much as we see these clips from these 
insecure Jordan Twitter feeds about how like every foul somebody got decapitated. It's just not true. Hand checking. Nobody, people were not grabbed the entire 48 minutes. People weren't hard fouling you the entire 48 minutes. The defenses had slower people, less athletic people. You had bigs that couldn't show on stuff. There's guys that get open looks all the time in this game that I don't think you see that number of open looks just by guys forgetting about people. Hell, Barkley got forgotten about just because everybody turned ball side and he ran behind people. Like that, That's ridiculous. So the myth of today's guys not being able to play back then, watch more of these games from the 90s. And I'm telling you right now, you're going to rethink all of that stuff and the fact that nobody's complaining and there are no charges. That part of it I loved. And you left out, they're losing people. And meanwhile, their spacing is terrible and everybody is five feet away from everybody else. And they're still losing people. You left out one thing with how much better it was to watch this game from a pacing standpoint. No fucking instant replay. Guess uh. what? Didn't really miss it. They had a play where uh, Kemp crashed into Barkley and Barkley might have gone backcourt. And I was, just, I'm watching, I'm in the mindset well, of, oh, Kemp fouls him, but they didn't want to Kemp call another him. foul on him. Right. But they and, didn't want to call another foul on him. Barkley went in the backcourt, so they just let it play out. And so now it would be challenged. The game would stop for five minutes, but this game has a real flow and it keeps going and going and going and moving. And you're right. The people, the players were afraid of the refs. They, this was the 70s, 80s, 90s. The refs were characters. They had huge egos. And you saw Joey Crawford. You're like, I'm not going to fucking yell at Joey. He's going to toss me. Or Javi. Or, or I won't get a call for the next two years of my career from him <laughs> if I embarrass him right now. And the guys now are just these automated robots that the players feel like they could just run over and do the whole thing. And I, I, I don't know. I kind of miss the old days. I have um, nothing else to add. Suns, Sonics, Game 5, 1993. Shout out to the Sonics fans, by the way. I still can't wrap my head around the fact that the Seattle Supersonics don't exist. Yeah, Rosillo, um, your podcast is you're one or two this week. Are you going to do another festival draft? You should do another festival draft. draft. Festival do another draft. draft. <laughs> uh, I don't know that we're going to do another festival draft. Maybe uh, we'll come up with something. My wife saw the finals or the, the final list of who who picked what and she said uh I'm I'm with Rosillo. Yeah. Out of the three. So I thought that was good. You guys have always liked each other. So I thought that was that was a win. That was a, yet another cog in your relationship, I feel like. I knew that the Miles Davis pick would really rule me out with a lot of people. Um but I'm telling you right now, you throw on in a silent way and tell me you're not having a good time, I'll refund your money. In 2008 and 2009, we used to do fantasy drafts about these stupid things. And I ended up putting a couple of them in columns, including, I think in 2009, we did a draft of celebrity kids who, who in 2025 would be the most screwed up. So it was like Mike Tyson's kid. Britney Spears and Kevin Federline's kid. It's in a column. It's I think it's in like a 2009. I have a whole thing. And then we did another. We did a media, a media, um, a, like a media police blotter draft. We did have a whole thing. And Jacoby picked me in like the eighth round. He picked me for the draft. Like something bad had to happen. Oh um, wait a minute. So a guy had to get arrested. Oh geez. Yeah, some sort of whatever. Um, but we eighth we, round is too high for you now. Well, I was I was younger. I was in my late thirties, but um, 
But the celebrity fucked up celebrity draft kid. I can't. I kind of can't believe I ran that. I feel like cancel yeah. culture would get mad at me now. I'm surprised you reminded everybody that it exists. Because hey, look, man, <laughs> it's a long time ago. People change. People grow. <laughs> uh, all right, Rosillo, I'll see you on Sunday night. Oh, one more thing. Uh, we have our Karate Kid rewatchables coming on uh, on Wednesday night. That's right. And uh, shout out to you for raising over a hundred grand for the is Boston Food Bank. Greater Boston Food Bank, yeah. Greater Boston. Got to do food more. Bank. It was it was good. Uh, it was good use of my time. I plan on doing more of that stuff. Rosillo, stay safe. Talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Rosillo. Thanks to everybody who donated, um, helping me with the Greater Boston Food Bank. We raised over a hundred thousand dollars, including uh, my contribution. If you want to donate to that, go find the link on my Twitter feed. Thanks to Mike Shore, who started the whole thing. Uh, a little bit earlier than I did because I saw it on Twitter. I saw that he was raising money for the LA Regional Food Bank and he did an incredible job. He raised, um, I think, close to $200,000, maybe even more for them. So uh, hopefully more people will follow suit with that. And uh, please remember to stay safe out there, practice all the social distancing stuff, distancing stuff, and listen to the experts. We'll be back with two more podcasts this week and the rewatchables Karate Kid. Until then.